Welcome to the Horseman's Academy podcast presented by Lundahl Performance. We believe in making advanced horsemanship accessible, and our mission is to present a raw, authentic look at horse training. We're problem solving, we're answering difficult questions, and we're breaking down common sense exercises for riders of all levels. On this podcast, we document the lessons we've learned in our own horsemanship journey while offering insights that might help you achieve your horsemanship goals. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of the Horseman's Academy. On this episode, we'll answer some questions around trailer loading, detail Day 3 of our colt starting program, and continue on with our series on training young cow horses. That's next on the Horseman's Academy podcast. In today's Q&A segment, we're going to be talking about trailer loading. Through Facebook and the other means for you guys to ask us questions, we've gotten multiple flavors of kind of the same question of trailer loading. So we're going to go through a couple things on that, what normally happens and what normally happens that goes wrong with trailer loading, and how we would like things to go in an ideal world, as well as address a good specific question that we got about a horse that panics when the trailer actually moves. We want to touch on this one because there's a lot of information out there on trailer loading and this isn't commonly addressed so we want to give you our take on it. Yeah and we'll just break into this subject by talking about how most people trailer their horses and why so many of these problems get created in the first place out of bad habits and then we'll go into talking about how we like to approach trailer loading and then finally we'll touch on that specific problem. So to start with this is the scenario of how most people trailer their horses. They decide to go on a weekend trail ride or they want to go to a local show. They haven't trailered their horse in quite some time. And typically the horse hasn't been worked enough anyway. So he's fresh. He's got excess energy. He's been chumming around with his buddies by the barn. And he's just kind of in a habit of being comfortable about that. All of a sudden, he gets pulled out of the pasture and put on the trailer. So already he's whinnying, he's stomping, he's pawing in the trailer, he's calling out for his buddies, he's super nervous. This is where a lot of people come to us and they talk about separation anxiety and their horse getting stressed and, you know, he's turbo crapping in the trailer because he's all nervous and, and just crapping up the trailer, stomping around, pawing, whinnying, screaming. All these behaviors come out. And if they finally get this thing on the trailer and get going down the highway... When they get to their destination, the horse is still acting like an idiot usually. Even if it's a couple hours later, you pull in and he can see or hear other horses in the campground area or on the showgrounds. And so he starts acting frustrated and anxious again. And so most people are in a hurry to then get the horse off the trailer because he's in there thrashing around like a hooked alligator. And think about, though, when because we've all been guilty of that. We pull in there, the horse is slamming and banging, it's super embarrassing and annoying, and we just want the horse to stop. So what do we do? We try to get the horse off the trailer as quickly as possible. And chances are, for a lot of us, we've done that a couple times on a couple different trips to where that horse has connected in his mind, okay, if I act like as much of an out-of-control tantruming child as possible, that means I get off the trailer quicker. It's just like a training article we posted recently about pawing, 
where people will try to intervene and interrupt the horse because it's annoying and the horse starts to figure out how to kind of mess with the human that way and it becomes a habit. So they get the horse off the trailer as quickly as possible, get it in a stall or a pen wherever they're at, and then that's usually where the horse gets a massive release of pressure and gets to rest and gets hay and water and feed. So he got a big reward for getting off the trailer after being a crazy idiot. And then finally, when the event is over, we put the horse back on the trailer and the entire thing repeats itself until we get home finally, let the horse off the trailer again as quick as possible because we're annoyed. Usually we're tired. We've been on the road. We just want to get this demon off the trailer and he gets to go back to his stall. He gets to go back, back to his buddies and back to his little comfortable home there. So what did we do at both ends of that journey? We were reinforcing in what we were rewarding and the way we were behaving around our horse, we're reinforcing the exact worst habits imaginable. On top of that, we're not really working on this trailering issue in, in a way that's going to fix it. We're not investing any time into solving this problem or just working this horse hard enough to give him an outlet for all that excess energy. Right. So say you sign up for a show or you enter into a show, so you kind of have your mental checklist, or maybe if you're super organized, maybe you even wrote it down, that, you know, you're going to pack your trailer, you're going to clean your tack, you need X, Y, and Z, um, you know, you need to start riding your horse a couple days before the show at, at minimum, but on basically nobody's list, is there an item that says, maybe touch on trailer loading or check in on this? This doesn't usually make it onto the list, and so it's not always like a conscious you know, neglecting of it, it just doesn't register. And we're bringing up the point that maybe it should. So in an ideal world, if we're going to fix this, a lot of fixing trailering issues really just has to do with the habits that you create around the trailer. One of the things that I used to do at home, um, there was a place called Turkey Creek Ranch, where is in by Newcastle, Nebraska, right by the Missouri River. It's got great little hills and trails all through there. Uh, with some open fields to train in, and then they had a campground with trailer hookups for horses. Well, because I was cheap and didn't want to rent a stall or a pen for my horse at the campground, here's what I would do. I would trailer my horse out there. When we got there, I would immediately go get the horse off the trailer and start riding them, start working them pretty hard, you know, take them out there, do all my exercises, what have you. I'd come back in, and this horse would be sweaty, he'd be tired, and he'd have an incentive to want to stand still. So then what I would do is unsaddle him, brush him or hose him off, and I would actually put the horse back on the trailer to rest. So he's got a hay bag in there, he's got some water, you know, it's it's comfortable, but at the same time, that's where the rest and the relaxation is, and that's where he's comfortable is on the trailer. And then a couple hours later, I pull that same horse back off the trailer, work him again, and if necessary, you know, put him back on the trailer or like if I got him really hot and sweaty, I'd tie him up to the side of the trailer, hobbled maybe, again, just preventing that pawing habit from from starting. Uh, and you can even put like a grazing muzzle or a leather muzzle on the horse to prevent him from chewing on the lead rope or raking their teeth along the side of your trailer and scratching the paint. And there's multiple ways you can do that. A, a big thing at home that we would often do is just have the gooseneck trailer parked somewhere and anytime we got done working a horse, what do we do? We either put them on the trailer or if the trailer was hooked up, we can tie them to the trailer and let them rest there after the training session. So both at home as well as on the road, we're doing things to create a habit where that horse is, he's actually craving the trailer because that's the comfortable area to be. 
a lot of people think about doing trailer loading and working on the stuff, usually on the ground, as a way to get the horse on the trailer. But it's about creating mental habits is how you get them super comfortable with it and craving it even when you go on these halls to trail rides or shows or what have you. So in an ideal world, you'd create situations where the trailer itself becomes like the horse's stall. It's like a mobile stall or a mobile barn that whatever place that you're riding at, when the horse isn't being worked, he's being tied and hobbled to the side of the trailer, or he's actually in the trailer resting where he's got hay bag and water, or if you've got a manger in there with alfalfa pellets, whatever. But the point is, most people are unwilling to invest the time in doing that. That is the necessary steps that you have to take to get that horse truly craving the trailer. You might not have to go to all that trouble of trailering your horse somewhere, but just practice trailering and keeping the horse on the trailer for multiple hours at a time at home. You know, if you've got the horse tied to the trailer, obviously have the trailer hooked up to the truck. Don't have the unhooked trailer there with the horse tied to it, okay? You got the trailer and the truck hooked up and sitting in the middle of your farm or your ranch specifically there as kind of a little oasis to where you you get done working the horse. And that's the other component to this is you need to be riding and working your horse enough to where he's got some incentive to want to stand still, want to relax and want to look for that rest and relief in the trailer. A lot of trailering problems either start or get exasperated by the horse having excess energy. So you need to work that excess energy off and then find ways to rest the horse at the trailer or in it and make that a habit at home to where when you take your horse places, they're just acting like a good, quiet citizen on the trailer. They're as comfortable in the trailer as they are in their own stall or paddock at home. There's literally no difference. Those steps are not often taken. And it's not just amateur horse owners either. As I said before, we've all been guilty of this at various times. But even high-level professional trainers that I've worked around or worked for, guys who are like multi-million dollar earners in performance horse industry, it was often embarrassing when, say, a customer that had a two-year-old in training or a client that purchased a a two-year-old or a young three-year-old would come out to pick their horse up from the ranch And these horses that have been in training with this multi-million dollar rider wouldn't even load on the trailer. We're having to stand behind them with like ropes and whips, whacking this thing into the trailer because we'd never spent the time, like a lot of horse trainers, never spent the time to actually get this thing comfortable on the trailer. Imagine paying a quarter of a million dollars for a high-level performance horse, and when you get there to pick it up from this world champion trainer, the dang thing won't even load on the trailer. That's common. It's, in fact, all too common because is it annoying to have to work on the trailer in a training context? Yes. But if you take like a week, say, to invest that time into creating those habits, you'll very rarely, if ever, have to worry about that again because the horse will be super comfortable with the trailer. So now we've kind of talked about where most people go wrong and unintentionally create bad habits and some of the habits we can instill to create good things around the trailer. But let's talk about a specific problem that has come up in our questions of horses that are actually panicking on the trailer when it's moving. Because I think that's a good subject that we've covered a lot is, number one, how to get the horse to load. Number two, how to create habits to get him comfortable in it. But what can you do if the horse is panicking as you're pulling out onto the highway? 
Well, there's a couple things on kind of my mental checklist. When somebody comes to me with this problem, it often comes down to several key factors. Number one, the horse fundamentally isn't comfortable in the trailer, and we've already addressed that. You need to practice loading your horse on and off the trailer on the ground. You need to make an actual exercise out of it in your groundwork program early on. And you need to create situations where after you've worked this horse intensively, you're letting them rest and get comfortable in the trailer. But a lot of times when people with this problem come to me, they haven't done that work and the horse is still fundamentally nervous about being in the trailer. He feels trapped and claustrophobic and he's not comfortable. Or another big problem is that that horse doesn't tie well or send into the trailer very well. And often the root cause of that is he doesn't fundamentally respect halter pressure and he doesn't fundamentally respect, like say if you close that divider in the trailer, rather than simply accepting being put in that bind and being relaxed about it, the horse feels trapped and claustrophobic and panics. And a lot of times these bad habits get created because a horse pulled back in the trailer and it was, you know, a traumatic experience where they smashed their head on the top bar or they broke a halter and flipped over or they panicked and slammed and crashed out of the trailer and now they don't want to go back in. Whatever the case may be, that horse fundamentally doesn't respect pressure and is not comfortable about being put in that bind. And that's really, it's a couple components there. One is your groundwork program and getting that horse to respect halter pressure and practice tying itself. You know, that horse needs to tie up better before you put them on the trailer. Number two, again, you know, going back to our program at home, what we like to do oftentimes is with the greener horses, once we have them tying, we'll actually tie them in a stock type trailer. So it's got a more open interior. And gradually, once they get more comfortable with that trailer, we can load them in smaller and smaller trailers. You know, we'll go from a big open stock type trailer to maybe we practice closing the divider in that trailer and, and having the horse still tied in there. Or we go to loading them in a smaller bumper pull type trailer, which is even smaller again. Or at our place in Nebraska, we had this tiny, tiny little straight load bumper pull, which that was kind of like the hardest one to get the horse into. So we would have two or three types of trailers that we would practice loading the horse into and getting them comfortable with it. Fundamentally, what it comes down to is that horse needs to respect halter pressure and needs to be comfortable in that smaller space. You've got to invest the time in getting them relaxed about that. And the number one thing we see when people come to us with these problems is the horse doesn't fundamentally respect halter pressure. They can't get this thing to flex. They can't even get it to lunge. It doesn't want to send in the trailer or really send anywhere on the ground for that matter. And often these horses have a pullback issue just being tied anywhere, regardless of whether they're on the trailer. So all these things need to be addressed. Another thing that you can do to build the horse's confidence, and this sometimes needs to be done before we'll even load the horse on a trailer itself, a lot of horses have trouble or they get very intimidated about uh, hollow-sounding things under their feet or shifting ground under their feet. So if you take them over, say, a small wooden bridge, that has a hollow clacking sound to it. They get very uncomfortable about that or over a bridge, for example. Again, that hollow plunking sound as their feet go over it. They can feel that it's hollow and they feel insecure about that and get nervous. And so we do a lot of sending horses over bridges, tarps, things under their feet that are typically uncomfortable for a horse, but we do that as part of our groundwork and obstacle program just to build confidence in these young horses. And we won't start with this 
But after we've done all of our bridge work and our tarps and things like that, we'll progress to sending the horse over a teeter-totter. And again, what does that do? It, it's something that's moving and making a noise under their feet. And depending on where they're stepping and how their weight is shifted, you know, that teeter-totter is moving underneath of them. And we'll teach them to be comfortable with that. And again, it builds confidence in them having something that's hollow sounding and moving under their feet. But yet the horse understands that if they think their way through this, they're going to be just fine. So that obstacle work combined with just all the rest of your groundwork and getting that horse to submit to pressure and be relaxed about that, that's probably the best way that you can really thoroughly prepare a horse to go on the trailer. And indeed, when we've dealt with remedial cases where these horses have a terrible loading habit or they're terrible in the trailer itself, we do a ton of groundwork before we actually go to put that horse back in the trailer. Nine times out of 10, because of all that cleanup work that we've done in the horse's foundation, the horse doesn't give a second thought to then going in the trailer. He needed to get respect. He needed a job. He needed to get his excess energy worked off, and he needed to get the thinking side of his brain engaged and maybe have a little bit of confidence about different surfaces that are moving being underneath of him with the bridges and teeter-totters, all that stuff has now gotten this horse good about the trailer without even working on the trailer itself. There is that odd exception of a horse that's still going to be anxious in the trailer, and that's where everything that we just talked about comes back into play of resting your horse on the trailer. Not for 10 to 15 minutes, I'm talking multiple hours at a time with a hay bag or a manger full of hay and a bucket of water in the trailer, making that trailer like it's a stall on wheels, thinking about it that way, getting that horse comfortable to be there. Because very rarely, if ever, I don't think I've ever seen a horse that was comfortable, like super comfortable in the trailer when it was standing still and just had good, good mental habits and a good foundation overall. The first time that we actually drove that trailer sure the horse might look a couple times but they don't panic and that's what a lot of people don't understand is like their horse is panicking in the trailer because they don't have good habits around submitting to pressure and just using the thinking side of their brain and they've got all kinds of excess bound up energy that's now coming out in this behavior they think that the trailer itself is causing the horse to panic Really what the horse is doing is he's having an overreaction because we've not taught him good mental habits and he's got way too much excess energy to play with. So the moral of the story is if you do your homework on this trailer loading, this problem of a horse panicking when the trailer moves, that never even comes up if you get your foundation right and you create good habits from the beginning or you go back and reinstill them in a horse with bad habits. That's the beauty of doing that foundation work in the beginning is you never have to deal with these little behaviors like this because it's just not even something that comes up. It's not even something that the horse considers. Now, the final thing I want to mention on horses panicking when the trailer moves, another reason why we see that so often is because number one, as we discussed in the beginning, people create bad habits around trailering, don't do the proper foundation. But a lot of times they in fact kind of unintentionally actually break their horse's confidence because the first time that horse is ever loaded and hauled in a trailer, it's in a trailer that is terrible for building that horse's confidence. Remember what I said before about how in our ideal world, we'll first load the horse a lot 
in a large open stock type trailer. And then we might go to a smaller slant load or a bumper pull that's an intermediate size. And then finally, the hardest trailers of all are those tiny, tiny bumper pulls. But a lot of people start with the tiny bumper pull. They don't do enough preparation. They don't build confidence in the horse or create good habits. And then on top of that, the first time this horse is ever hauled, it's in a tiny cramped low clearance trailer that when they start moving down the road, this horse already had bad habits and lack of preparation. When they get exposed to that and they're now in motion and feeling trapped and claustrophobic in this tiny, cramped, terrible trailer, it just, it creates an overreaction. It creates a really a big mess. So if possible, if you can avoid loading your horse or practicing loading and hauling, at least for the first few sessions, in a trailer that's just bad for building a horse's confidence, that's ideal. The other advantage of getting your hands on a stock trailer, even if it's not yours, you, know, you can borrow one, use one at the barn, um, is that I've really seen that help the owner's confidence as well. Some owners are just really terrified being in that equation of their horse, a trailer, and them. And that's not um, without reason either. A lot of these small itty-bitty tra trailers, they're really tight and narrow like there's no space for you to tie the horse up and get out there's no escape door and it's just a really tight kind of hairy combination and so it helps the owner relax and be a more confident better leader around a trailer that there's a little bit more wiggle room and both of you guys can be more comfortable and build some experience and build some confidence there yeah a lot of these little bumper pull trailers have like dividers and bars and things on the trailer that are fixed in place and welded. And so if the horse does something silly or dangerous, you know, your arm might get crushed in there in between the bar or just in general, there's really no escape route to get out. Usually they're really low as well. And so bottom line is if you can, if you either have one or you know somebody that's got one and you can convince them to let you borrow their trailer for a couple days, the best way to start your horse loading is in an open stock type trailer. You can practice loading and unloading. You can practice tying the horse in the trailer. And in fact, that's probably the best thing to start getting your horse hauling experience in is to either be turned loose in the front compartment of or simply just tied in the front compartment of a stock type trailer because then they're restricted somewhat and they're in motion but at the same time, they're not super constricted by like a, a slant load divider like in most horse trailers. So you can build the horse's confidence being tied and even hauled a few times in the stock trailer and then transition to a slant load type trailer. Or if you've got a small little bumper pull, go to that then once the horse's confidence is built. Just use your head and have some creativity in how you build this horse's confidence and don't make the mistake that most horse owners do, which is to neglect this until you have an incident that's either highly embarrassing, where you can't take this horse anywhere and have them be a good citizen on the trailer because they're always acting a fool, or you get yourself in a dangerous situation trying to load a horse that's panicky and not content to be on the trailer, and you're trying to load them into a tight bumper pull, and they panic and crush you into the side or smash you into the divider or slam their head on the roof of the trailer and cut themselves open. There's all kinds of problems that can happen if you haven't done enough preparation. So we take this trailer loading quite seriously in our program, and that's why we felt it was a good topic to bring up in the segment today.
let's go into our foundation segment. We're going to go into day three of our cult starting program. We did days one and two in the previous two episodes. Day three is going to consist of the following exercises. We're going to get the horse out and desensitize. We're still in the round pin at this stage. We're going to desensitize. We're going to flex the horse today with the halter with steady pressure. Then we're going to round pin the horse, and then we're going to catch him again, work on yielding the hindquarters, lunging stage one and two on the ground. We're going to rub down their legs again, and then we're going to lead them by one foot today. So we're going to briefly skim over the exercises that we do because we really want to talk about leading by the feet. We're going to do that for the next four days. We're going to do one leg each day. And this is something that's counterintuitive to a lot of people because typically you get taught that after you've done all this groundwork and the horse is respectful of pressure and this and that, then you teach the rest of the hobbling, one-legged hobble, etc. And then you can do leading by the feet as an added bonus. And one of the things that often confuses people is like, wow, it's day three. You haven't even taught lunging yet. You're teaching it today, but then you're also leading the horse by the foot today and you haven't even done hobbling. Why are you doing that so soon? So we wanted to talk about why that's important and kind of focus on that. But let's go through just a basic rundown of how our exercise session looks up to that point where we lead the horse by a foot. So today, after desensitizing the horse with both the lead rope and the stick and the string, we're going to teach him how to flex to the halter pressure using steady pressure. So this is going to be super important and we need to start it now so the horse is pretty good at it. That way we can bend this horse's head around when we do his first saddling. So that's what we're preparing for here. It's also just going to teach him to yield his face and give to that halter pressure. So we'll teach that exercise. And then keep in mind that from this point forward, desensitizing and flexing are always going to be together. It's like they're married. Can't have one without the other. So whenever we desensitize a horse, you're going to flex them. Then you're going to change sides, desensitize the other side, flex them there. So from now on, these two are going to be constants and you can't have one without the other. Yeah, we're very methodical about that. And we typically want to do between five to 10 flexes on each side, in addition to desensitizing on that side before we switch sides. So we'll do an exercise, stop, desensitize, flex, change sides, desensitize and flex on that other side, and then move on to the next sensitizing exercise. Right. We want this flexing to become second nature to them. And these small sessions sprinkled throughout the training session are going to be far more productive than spending a huge, like a single huge, large block of time on flexing. We're spreading it out. And so it's a constant theme that they can't escape from or ignore or just mentally block out from the session. It, it's everywhere. Flexing, like other exercises, like yielding the four quarters, if you drill on it too much, you're going to make the horse bored and they're going to start being more resistant than they otherwise would have been. So what we'll do is when we teach it with steady pressure, you know, we'll stand very close to that horse's flank, basically with our belly button on the horse's flank. We're going to have our hand that's closer to the horse's tail is going to be up on the top of their hindquarters, kind of hugging their butt, so to speak. We're going to slide our other, our other hand down, gather that lead rope up and draw it up towards the horse's withers and just sit there and hold that pressure and ask that horse to just give their nose. And we're going to find a starting point where that horse gives their nose like an inch or half an inch and creates just a little bit of momentary slack in that lead rope. And then we flick that rope away and release completely, slide our hand down again, pick up. And initially we might only get that horse bent around to like 90 degrees. 
Right. And that's another thing that spreading this out through the session, I used to pick fights with my horses by thinking that the first time I flex this horse, it has to give all the way to its belly. And so we'd spin and spin and spin and spin and spin. And I'd spend like way too much time trying to get this to happen um, in, in that first mini session of the day that I'm teaching it. So by making sure that I do it every time I desensitize my horse, that means I'm doing it in between every exercise with this horse, I can spread it out a little bit more. And so the first time I flex, like Jake said, I might only get 90 degrees. Okay, the next time it should be a little bit further, a little bit further, a little bit further. So then by the end of that session, okay, he's touching his belly. That's not to say there's not going to be some resistance there and you're still going to have to stay with him if he moves his feet or spins around or whatever, but we can break it down and make it a little bit more palatable and be smarter in the way that we're teaching this rather than just, you know, buffaloing through it. Yeah, because keep in mind, this horse has no idea right now of how to submit to that halter pressure. So if we crank his head all the way around, we're now putting him in an extreme bind that he has no prerequisite or idea of how to figure out to get a release. And so typically you'll create a much bigger fight for yourself if you try to bite off more than you can chew. The best approach is to find a starting point at about like 90 degrees and chip away at it every little desensitize and flex session you have. You're teasing that nose around further and further until we get that horse to actually touch his belly with his nose. Right. And it's enough of a bend and you're tipping his nose enough that he has to acknowledge that something is happening. He's in a bind and he still has to find a give, but you're not completely curling him around and trapping him from the get go until he has some sort of understanding of the exercise. And I know we're talking about this in the context of colt starting, but this also applies for like retraining an older horse or a problem horse that is just stiffer and more resistant, the same thing applies and is very, very helpful there as well to find a starting point around that 90 degree angle area and then build from there. So after we've desensitized the horse, we flexed on both sides, then we'll unsnap the lead rope and we're going to do our round pinning again today. This is the third day in a row and we're really going to have a focus now. Every day we're getting pickier on that horse respecting our point that they need to move off in the direction that we choose. They need to carry themselves with more momentum. We need to be working on getting that gas pedal better and better. So whereas in the previous couple sessions, we had some flexibility with that horse of when they would break down, we'd let them jog for a quarter circle and then pick the lope back up. And we had a lot more tolerance there. Now we're going to start tightening everything up. Now, why do we do that? Well, in our program, the way we teach that horse the first couple rides that we do under saddle, we have somebody on the ground helping to flag the horse around. There's a rider up top that's controlling the horse a little bit, but really they're just kind of a passenger. The person on the ground with the flag is the one that's actually creating impulsion and helping direct that horse's feet and helping the person under saddle to get the job done in a way that is not overloading that horse. So that means that in this round pinning phase, we need to start getting progressively more picky about that horse's gas pedal, meaning that they respect our point, they're moving off of pressure, we're able to decisively point off a direction and they go that way, they respect that pressure, but at the same time, we need to tighten up our turns. So whereas in the previous couple sessions, we were taking a big step out in front of the driveline, we had our finger up in front of our face, beckoning that horse to turn and look in, and we would be basically running backward all the way to the back fence if necessary 
to encourage that horse to turn and look in. Now what we're going to do is step out in front and we're going to take three backward steps. One, two, three. And by the time we've gotten to that third step back, if that horse hasn't turned in and acknowledged that we stepped out in front of that drive line and we're going to be turning them here in a second, then we're going to aggressively step in toward that horse's head and put pressure on them and force the horse to make a decision. And a lot of times, because we're putting that extra amount of pressure on the horse, they'll mistakenly turn into the fence. And so we'll correct them in the same way. Go out, cut them off, get an angle on them, send them back the original direction, set them up again. But we're shrinking that window of tolerance that we're giving that horse rather than having several seconds to make a decision. We're giving him three steps out in front of the drive line and then three steps back. One, two, three. And if he hasn't acknowledged us by then, we're going to put more pressure on him and force him to either commit to the mistake or make the correct decision and turn in toward us and drive off the other direction. So we're forcing that horse to start thinking a little bit now rather than lollygagging around and taking all the time in the world to finally make a decision. Right. So just like Jake was saying, we're kind of transitioning from the teaching phase with this round pinning because it's now day three into the do it now stage. And that's going to directly relate. And we're, we're raising those expectations in preparation for the first ride where the flagger on the ground in the middle of the round pin is essentially round pinning the horse with the rider on top doing some minimal things, but mainly being a passenger. So because having a rider on this colt's back is going to be a brand new experience for him, he's automatically going to be more distracted from the flagger who is round pinning him. So if you go into that scenario with very so-so or subpar round pinning established with this horse, it's going to go down the toilet very quickly because he's distracted. So we need to make sure that we did a good job and we polished this round pinning up and cleaned it up a little bit so that when we lose a bunch of that focus because we have a rider on his back, that that flagger still has control of the horse's feet. So then we're going to briefly teach our lunging stage one and two. Lunging stage one, meaning we're going to send the horse off around the round pin. We've obviously got the lead rope on the horse, and we're going to stop and change directions by yielding that horse's hindquarters and getting two eyes, switching hands with our training tools, and then sending the horse off the other way. So we're going to yield the horse to a stop completely before changing directions in that stage one exercise. In stage two, we're simply going to step out in front of the drive line after switching hands on the lead rope and the stick, step out in front of that horse and send them off the other way, effectively getting that horse to roll back over his hocks and make a 180 degree turn without coming to a complete stop first. We're going to challenge that horse a little bit to collect himself, sit back on his rear end because we're stepping out in front of that drive line, and then our immediate next step is towards that horse's front end. Our, we're stepping towards that front end and driving that front end away and off in the other direction. And typically, we're not going to spend too much time refining either one of these things. This is just a concept lesson of stage one and stage two today. And we've already set ourselves up for this by doing a good job with our round pinning. Like, he should already know what a point means, so now we're just adding the halter pressure to that. So it's not like this is completely out of left field. I mean, the concepts are applied a little bit differently, but a lot of that uh, foundation stuff that's going to help us, we already got done in our round pinning. Like we should already have his feet unstuck. He should have somewhat of a gas pedal. We're in the round pin, so it's not like he can really like 
run away or do anything. We're still in that controlled environment and that's intentional. And we already have him paying somewhat attention to our body language by teaching him yield the hindquarters and by getting our turns in our round penning. So yeah, like Jake said, we're not drilling on this. It shouldn't be a terrible, terrible shock for the horse. We're just getting it established and getting it started so that we can build on it in the next couple days. Yeah, and the better we get the horse flexing with the halter, the more respectful they get of that halter pressure. That's going to help our lunging even further. But overall, this is very easy easy session because we're in the round pin, you know. So we've got the fence kind of corralling the horse a little bit, and we're not having to fight with them just to get them to lunge around in a circle. So we're not going to spend too much time on the lunging. We'll refine that in the next several days. But by the time we get to leading by the feet, We've done our round pinning, we've worked on these other things, and we've done two stages of lunging. So this horse should be pretty tired, pretty sweaty, and has an incentive to want to either stand still and find relief or just in general yield to pressure. Because we've not only been hustling and moving and sensitizing him, we've been teaching him to flex, we've been yielding his hindquarters, we've been reviewing all that submission to pressure. So now he's in a mental green zone where we can introduce a new concept with this leading by the feet exercise. Yes, I was going to use the term mentally malleable. He's he's soft and formable right now. Yep, just like last time we talked about the green zone. That's the perfect stage to introduce this. And the point of the leading by the feet exercise is that we want to be able to actually, using a lariat, we want to be able to lead that colt forwards and backwards off of pressure just with that rope tied to one of his front or back feet. We're going to start with usually the left hind is what we'll pick. doesn't really matter, but we typically start with hind feet on day one. And this is a great way to teach the horse just to give to that type of pressure. So just like we talk about in the rest of our hobbling exercises, which will come later in the process, this is also a safety issue as well. Teaching a horse to submit to this pressure on their feet rather than fighting against it instead to relax and yield, that comes in handy in so many ways, not the least of which is if your horse ever got hung up in a fence, rather than thrashing and fighting and shredding all the soft tissue off of their legs, they're simply going to relax and yield to that. There's been many stories of people that did a good job with the leading by the feet and the hobbling exercises who came out and found their horse trapped in a fence and that horse hadn't panicked and lost its mind because it learned the hobbling. So the hobbling has a lot of practical purposes training-wise as well, but it's also a safety issue from a standpoint of getting that horse to relax about having his feet taken away. And in this case today, we're just going to start with one hind foot. So I've seen this done a couple different ways, and Jake will go into more details of the way that we prefer and the way that we teach it in a minute. But first, I'm going to tell you what we don't do. So what I've seen people do is use like actually just a a lead rope or a long line and not a lariat. It's just a soft rope. Um, It's usually not very long. And they'll go out, you know, even in a field or in an arena. And just from a standstill with pressure and release, they'll start pulling on these horses' legs, getting them handled and getting them, um, you know, with, with a hind leg, getting that horse to step back a couple steps off of that. So what we actually teach is for, we'll, we'll send the horse off and we'll create forward motion from the trot and the lope. Then we'll put pressure on our lariat and expect that horse to stop and then follow that horse or follow that pressure rather backwards. So that's a lot higher of an intensity of a situation versus just from a standstill 
pulling that horse back by a hind foot. So if a horse is going to get caught in a fence or something like that is going to happen, it's usually going to happen with pretty much intensity. You know, that horse is going to go through a fence and then all of a sudden realize like, oh goodness, I'm stuck here, okay? That is not a low intensity situation. So we're going to teach this using higher intensity so that the horse has been exposed to that and that's going to increase our odds of this being effective if the horse gets himself into that situation later down the road, which we can't plan for. So we're just setting ourselves up in the most thorough way possible. So the tools that we're going to use when we teach leading by the feet, we're going to be in the round pin again, and we're going to start off with the horse haltered. So we've got the halter and leader rope on the horse. We've also got a lariat with us in the round pin, and we've got leather gloves on our hands. We're going to need those. Now, there's some debate over what type of rope you actually use for this. And there's, in my opinion, it's not so important. A lot of people like to use a 45-foot lariat. I like to use a 28 to 30 foot calf rope that's got a thicker, softer, usually like a four strand type of calf rope. The typical length for those ropes is about 28 feet. If you're in a 50 foot round pin, you know, the radius of that pin is about 25 feet. You're not going to always be in the, standing in the exact center of the pin. I feel like 28 feet is a good length. Why? A couple reasons. If you're using a 45-foot lariat for this, you're going to end up with a bunch of coils of excess rope to hang on to. Now, if you're not very experienced with managing your rope, that's going to get in the way. Also, as part of this exercise, you're going to need to drive the horse off around the round pin. You're not going to have a free hand to hold a stick and string. You're going to have to use the rope or do something to try to create energy and pressure to move that horse off. Well, if you've got a really sensitive horse, that's easy. You just got to slap the coils against your leg and kind of cluck to them and they'll move off. With a lazier horse, it's more difficult. You kind of have to flick the rope that's tied to their foot at them to kind of slap their rear end or slap their flank or up under their belly to get them motivated there. But other than that, and kind of impotently slapping the coils against your leg, a real lazy horse is going to be super reluctant to move off. And so with a shorter rope, it's easier to have an end that you can twirl and spank the ground or even the horse if you need to, and then quickly gather that back up. It's easy to manage a couple coils instead of a pile of them of excess rope that you don't need. You don't want to have a short little goat rope, but you don't want to have a big honking 60-foot lariat either because it's just too much to manage. And people that are less experienced with this tend to make the rope too long and get themselves out of position. So we'll just briefly go through the steps of this exercise here. I've got the horse in the center of the round pin. I've got the halter and lead rope on them. Uh, if I'm on the left side of the horse, I've got the halter and lead rope in my left hand. I've got the rope and some loose coils. And because I've been in close to the horse now in multiple sessions, desensitizing and flexing, I should be in a safe enough point here to build a little loop with my lariat in my right hand and kind of set that under the horse's belly in front of and in, in you know, as much as you can while maintaining safety, you kind of set that loop in between the horse's back legs. And at the same time, you put a little pressure on that hip, kind of turn their nose towards you with the halter and lead rope and just ask them to step that hindquarters over one step. If you position your loop correctly, you can actually snag that horse's left hind leg without having to bend down and actually grab their leg with your own hands and therefore put yourself in an unsafe position. You can maintain a little bit of distance away and not have your head down there, 
but you can put a loop under there strategically and then yield their hindquarters a step and they'll step into that loop. It takes a little bit of practice, but you can master that pretty easily. Once you've got the lariat on the horse's leg, obviously you need to tighten it down to where the hondo is right over the pastern. You want it on the lowest part of that horse's leg. You don't want it up on their hock or something like that. Now what I'll do at that point usually is unsnap the lead rope and just toss it aside. Either leave it in the center of the pin or throw it outside of the fence because all I really need now is my lariat. The horse knows the round pinning, so what I'll do is use my hands or use the rope itself to create some energy and drive that horse off. If I've got the lariat on the horse's left hind leg, I'm going to drive the horse counterclockwise around the pin so that his leg with the rope on it is in on the inside so that it's toward me. I'm going to let out enough slack in that rope to where the horse can go to the fence and can travel around that pin. And ideally, I, I at least want to get that horse jogging, if not cantering a few strides before I start to put pressure on this rope. So right now the rope is just drifting with the horse. It's on his foot, but I'm not pulling on it any yet. However, I will say you don't want to let the horse run and run and run around the pin. A lot of horses in the beginning, when they initially feel that rope, they'll start running faster and faster and, and at the same time kicking and kicking at the rope. That's why I'll just ease the horse off and just kind of gauge where their mentality's at. Do they take off and go you know, pissing and farting around the pin a thousand miles an hour? Or are they a dull, lazy horse? Or are they somewhere in between? I'm not just going to scare them and spook them off around the pin and let them panic run for 10 laps. I'm going to move them off at a jog, step them up into the lope, use my hands, use my rope to create some energy there, and then I'll look for an opportune moment to actually sit on that rope and start applying some pressure. Right, because if you let them just run pell-mell like that straight out of the gate, and especially if you didn't do a very good job of tightening it up around that horse's pastern, they can slip out of it when they're running or kicking at it. Well, then they just got a huge release of pressure before you've even taught them anything. Then you got to catch them because you already unsnapped them. Then you got to catch them, bring them back to the center, have them step through the loop again. And so just don't do that. Or when you send them off, you're not pulling on it, but there's not like 10 feet of slack to where it's flopping around in the wind either because then just the weight of the extra slack as that horse runs around can pull the loop loose on that horse's foot so you're not pulling on it but you're you're managing your slack smartly so that he can't slip his foot out of it there is a bit of feel and timing involved to both managing the slack and keeping the rope untangled to where it's not getting under the horse's other legs and getting wrapped around their legs accidentally there is some feel and timing and rope management skill. And that is why a lot of trainers that teach this, they say that it's like an optional part of their program, or they wait until much later in the program to introduce it to the people that they're teaching. But we're going to be upfront about the fact that this is something we teach on day three, and it's a skill that if you develop it, it can help your horsemanship so much. But by doing it later in the program, the horse is further along in his training, and basically there's a lot bigger grace period there for you as the handler to make mistakes. Exactly. The horse will be more forgiving. So it's really up to you and your realistic evaluation of your own skill level on how early you want to teach this. We'll go into some reasons, though, again, and kind of recap at the end why we love to do this so early. But back to our actual training steps here. So we've got the horse moving around the pin. The rope is where it needs to be. And typically what we'll be doing is we'll be walking a circle in the middle of the pin 
but we'll be staying a lot further behind the drive line even than we were during the round pinning, both when we send the horse off and just to keep them moving and driving around the round pin. We're going to have a lot of active body language. We're going to be walking a bigger circle and be further behind the drive line. Now, there's no set distance here, and this is where it, it becomes a, a challenge to talk about it over audio. It's really best demonstrated in person. But the idea, or what we want to accomplish here, is we want to take that rope and have it wrapped once around under our butt because what we're going to do is use our body weight to kind of sit on the rope and rather than pulling on it with our hands and pulling against the horse's leg that way, we're just going to sit on the rope itself and apply some steady pressure in order to ask that horse to stop and yield to that rope. What I'll typically do if the horse is going counterclockwise around the pin and I've got the rope, say, I've got the coils in my right hand and I've got the rope itself in my left. I'll kind of pass the coil to my left hand, take it around behind me, and bring it back underneath the rope itself to create like one dally there. Do not tie it to yourself. Do not wind it around multiple times. Don't do any of that stupid stuff. You want to take one wrap so you can quickly drop those coils and get out of it if something bad happens here. But you're going to wrap the rope once around kind of your lower rear end area because you want to sit on this rope and use your own body weight rather than the strength of your hands and of your arms. Because it doesn't really matter how big and strong you are, you're not going to be able to pull this thousand pound horse around. And when you initially put pressure on this rope, the horse is going to be struggling, pulling, and also kicking at the rope. And so this is where it helps to have some meat on your bones and have a little lead in your ass to where you can sit on that rope and give your arms a break to where your hands are just managing the rope and keeping it dallied around your waist one wrap, but the rest of your body weight is getting the job done. However, this does take a little bit of strength and a little bit of athletic ability. So if you've got a bum knee or you've got hip problems or whatever, this is not a safe thing for you to be doing. But regardless, what I'm going to do is when my body position, and it, it takes a little bit of careful timing, but when my body position Let's say that the horse's nose is at a 12 o'clock position and their tail is at 6 o'clock. Okay, if you imagine a clock face on the ground under the horse. I'm going to be standing at about a 7.30ish to 8 o'clock position. So off to an angle in relation to that horse's hip. I'm not going to be directly behind the horse, but I'm not going to be out at a 90 degree angle either. I'm going to be back far enough to where when I sit on this rope and start applying pressure that I'm not pulling the horse sideways, okay? But I'm also not directly behind the horse, just getting drug around by him. The downside of being directly behind the horse and what, what it helps me remember is that when you're directly behind it, he has all the kicking power and he can just, he can really beat you up back there through the rope like that. And if you go out and try this, like, try it once, pulling from straight behind, you'll feel it right away. You don't want to be directly behind him because he's got all the leverage. You want to be a little bit to the side to where you're not getting beat up, but not so far to the side that you're pulling him sideways. So when you sit on that rope and start pulling, you're going to have somewhere between 16 to 20 feet of rope between you and the horse. You're going to have some significant distance to where you're in the safe zone. You want to be far enough away from the horse that you stay safe and you're well outside of his kicking range but you don't want to have so much slack in the rope that you lose control of the horse. 
you want it to be short enough to where you can keep active pressure on that horse's leg because most horses, the first few times you do this, when you initially pick up and start to immobilize their leg, they try to turn one way or the other. And in that case, you need to apply more pressure and more aggressively pull back on that leg to get their hips straightened out again instead of letting them back up at an odd angle or turn and get tangled in the rope. So you, you can't have so much slack that you run out of room and hit the round pin fence and the rope is still slack and that horse can turn and go where he wants to. You need to have enough tension in the rope and be short enough to maintain control but not too close to the horse to where you're putting yourself in danger. Right. And we talked about being too far behind the horse. If you're too far in front of the horse, you're almost driving that front end away and and pushing him into the fence and making him turn away from you. That's a less common problem. Usually people get washed out too far behind. But if your horse is just as soon as you apply pressure to its foot, he's darting and turning into the round pen, into the fence, you're probably a lot too far forward and you're not putting enough pressure on the rope. Get back and put more pressure on the rope. Yep, so we're going to sit on that rope and hold it, hold it, hold it. That horse is going to be thrashing, kicking, jumping, bucking, doing all kinds of stuff. Now that you're putting active resistance on that rope, they're going to be struggling against it. Some horses will machine gun kick the rope. Others will buck and kick out and double barrel. Some will try to run away from it. They'll try to speed up. In any case, you're doing the best that you can to keep sitting on the rope, keep it dallied around your butt and maintain that pressure. It's not so important that you hold your position because that horse is probably going to pull you around a little bit, okay? You're going to have to drift with the horse, but you can't release the pressure. That's the main point. And that was the exact point that I was going to make is that, you know, you cannot always bring that horse to a screeching halt. But what Jake said is 100% true is that you just need to maintain that pressure as best as your body weight allows. Like, I would venture to say that nine horses out of ten, they're going to come to a stop faster with Jake because he has more leverage there and a little bit more weight to work on. I can still 100% definitely get it done because I'll maintain that pressure and be smart with my timing, but it might take him a second or two longer to slow down. Yeah, so like in my case, that horse might pull me you know, my boots are sliding in the sand as I'm getting drug maybe a couple feet before that horse loses momentum and starts to submit to that pressure. Whereas with Amy, Amy might be skiing around the round pin, half a circle or a quarter circle, but it really doesn't matter because either way, what we're not doing is we're not releasing the pressure. It doesn't matter that you can outmuscle the horse. That's not even the point here. The point is not to outmuscle and physically overpower the horse. It's to put pressure on them and wait until they relax and submit. And in this first stage here, the first couple times you do this, we're not actually looking for the horse to back up in response to that pressure on the rope. We're just asking them to stop running forward and stop struggling. So typically the horse is sitting there jumping, kicking, machine gunning the rope. They come to a stop and they stop running forward but typically they're still tense with that leg. They're kicking at the rope, kicking, 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 actively trying to pull. And then the second you see all those muscles relax in their hindquarters and they start to allow that leg to come down and they stop fighting as much, it's not going to be perfect, but they stop resisting as much, then you step forward, release the pressure, and let that rope have slack in it. So you gave that horse, your timing has to be good on that but you give the horse a massive release of pressure the moment they stop actively fighting the rope. So we find a starting point there, and 
ideally the horse will stop completely and just stand there for a few seconds and we can let them stand there with slack in the rope and let them have a release. A lot of horses will try to immediately run off again, at which case we'll just maintain our position and let them hit the end of that rope again, hold it, hold it, hold it, wait, wait, wait. When they finally stop and relax again, then we'll release the rope again. We might have to play that cat and mouse game two or three times, but ideally we want to get to a spot where the horse stops completely and slows down and thinks for a second about the situation that they're in, and we give them a release of pressure at that exact moment. From there on, it becomes easy to build on that starting point and get the horse to submit quicker and quicker to that pressure on the rope. So it's important that after that initial pickup, the horse struggled, 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 struggled. He finally stopped and thought about relaxing that leg that the rope is on. And so you release the pressure. And I've seen some people that I've been teaching or students, they do that. And the the student is like, ah, and they like relax. And, you know, they want to look over their shoulder or, you know, look outside the round pen. Don't take your focus off that horse and don't create so much slack that it the horse can take several steps forward before you can make contact again you you release that pressure and you had good timing there great but you're you're you know right there ready to pick up on that horse again if it goes to go forward and your focus doesn't leave that horse now is not uh the time to be talking to your buddies on the other side of the fence keep your focus on that horse and make so that you are not having you know feet and feet of slack to have to swamp through if that horse goes forward you are still very much in position and ready at that point because a lot of horses will try one of several things initially They'll either try to walk or run forward immediately after you release the pressure, at which point you need to be ready to immediately sit on that rope, let the horse hit the end of it, and go back to holding, 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 and wait for him to relax again. Or other horses will start to swing their butt sideways or turn their body around to try to face you. At that point, that you run the risk of them stepping over the rope and getting tangled up in it. So if the horse tries to turn like that, you need to immediately run backward, reestablish contact on the rope, and actually pull that horse's hindquarters back more into line so that you're more behind the horse instead of allowing them to turn sideways like that. The further to the side that horse turns to try to face you or try to turn into the fence, for example, the more you run the risk of losing control. Now, if you do lose control like that and the horse completely turns the opposite way, Like, let's say I've got the lead rope on the horse's left hind leg. So ideally, that horse's nose is always kind of pointed counterclockwise around the round pin, okay? But let's say that horse completely turns to his right and is now going clockwise around the pin. And that rope is all tangled up. It's on the wrong side of his back feet, etc. Well, at that point, I just have to drop the rope, give him enough slack. I have to run out in front of the horse, cut him off shoe him back the other way, and then have to use some feel and timing to get the rope reset and get back to what I was doing. So if you lose control of the horse like that and he turns the wrong way, it's not the end of the world. But the idea is you don't want to let that happen a bunch. You don't want to make that become a habit. You want to be on the ball enough to, as soon as that horse starts to turn the wrong way, you quickly rush back, reestablish contact on the rope, and get that horse back under control before he breaks the exercise that we're doing here. So in the beginning, we're going to repeat that process going the same direction. We're going to send the horse off, and that's the rule. The horse is only allowed to run forward if we are actively sending them. Anytime that horse chooses to try to run forward without us cueing him and putting pressure, we're going to 
sit on that rope again, hold it, hold it, hold it, and wait for him to relax and then release. But when he's committed to standing still, now we'll send him off around the round pin and we're going to repeat that process. We're going to get him going, say a lap, lap and a half at most. Then we're going to sit on that rope again, hold it, hold it, hold it as he struggles, kicks, jumps. And then when he relaxes and stops, then we'll release again. We're going to do that multiple times. And each time that horse is going to get a little bit quicker about picking up on, oh, when I feel that pressure, I need to stop running forward and I need to rock back a little bit and I need to soften and relax my hindquarters and submit to that pressure. Once we've established that habit, now what we can do is we can send the horse off, sit on the rope, hold it, hold it, hold it. We get the horse to stop, and then we'll actually, using pressure and release, we're going to start teasing them backward one step at a time. So we got that horse to stop, we gave him a release of pressure, slackened the lead rope, and just stepped forward and waited there for a few seconds. Now we're going to pick back up on the rope, step back, sit on the rope again, put pressure, hold it, hold it, hold it. And when that horse takes a step back in the direction of that pressure toward us, then we're going to release the rope again. And so with pressure and release, starting with just one step, we're going to tease that horse backward a couple steps at a time. So we can kind of break this down into two general phases. Phase one, get the horse to stop off the pressure, get that semi-consistent. Phase two, get the horse to stop and back up off the pressure. So when we're on phase two, where we're stopping and backing the horse up off the pressure, we might send him off, sit on the rope, get him to stop, pull more, using pressure and release, get him to take a step backwards, release. Then without even sending him forward, we might work on pulling pressure, get him to take a step back and release and get him to take several steps back then send him forward and repeat that. Yeah, and we're going to continue this session on that same, in this case, left hind foot until, number one, we can barely send the horse off anymore around the round pin because he knows that he's just going to run a short ways and then we're going to sit on that lead rope and ask him to stop and back up again. And we've done that enough times to where now the horse is reluctant to move off. At that point, we know we've gotten inside this horse's head. Yes, we're in his head. So it's 100% a mental thing here. The hotter the horse, the more repetitions it's going to take to get to that. There's not a set amount of time or a set number of repetitions. With the dull, lazy horse, he's going to get to that point a lot quicker than the Arab or the thoroughbred that wants to run. Regardless, you need to keep going until he is reluctant to go forward because he's anticipating being stopped. Yeah, I've had some horses where this exercise took 10 minutes. Others took 45 to an hour. I'd say the biggest mistake I see most people make is they quit too early when the horse really isn't mentally grasping this or hasn't truly relaxed and understood the exercise yet. They're still in kind of an iffy stage where the horse has still got way too much energy and is too willing to run forward and the person just quits. And at that point, you've shot yourself in the foot and shortchanged yourself. So make sure you stay in this exercise long enough to where that horse really starts to relax and they understand the exercise so much that they it's almost hard to get them to do it anymore because you can't shoo them off to get them going forward anymore because they're so willing and anticipating that they're going to have to submit to that leg pressure and back up off that rope. So at that point, you know you've done your job well, and we're just going to do that one leg for today. We're going to do one at a time each of the next four days. Because this takes a lot out of the horse, especially on days one and two with the hind feet. 
typically most horses are going to struggle and kick and buck and do all that stuff in the beginning. And a lot of that kicking out, it takes a lot physically out of the horse. A lot of them are pretty tired after these sessions. So we're just going to quit at that point. We're not going to do all four feet in one day and kill this horse. We're just going to do one leg per day until we get all the way around the horse. And that's a good pace to set there. So once we've gotten to a really good place mentally where this horse understands the exercise and we've done enough repetition, now we need to think about getting the rope off. Now this is where I like, you know, if you've got some athletic ability or you're more experienced, you've simply kept the lead rope in a nice coil on the ground in the middle of the round pin. So it's right there handy to grab. Otherwise, the lead rope might be on the fence or laying outside of it. You need to find an opportune moment to go grab it. But what I'll typically do is now that we've got that horse walking backward consistently off that foot rope pressure, I'm going to lead the horse by its feet to where its body is in the center. So I'm actually going to lead the horse by the feet to the center of the round pin. I'm going to release the pressure and just allow him to stand still. And so in this case, again, we've got the rope on the left hind foot of this horse. And so at that point, I'll start walking around toward his head on that left side with my lead rope. My intention is to snap it up to the halter that's still on him and catch him and then get this foot rope off. At any time, though, if that horse goes to leave me and walk forward, I've still got that foot rope on him. So I need to be aware and I need to react quickly about stepping back behind him, putting pressure on that foot rope, getting him stopped again maybe backed up a couple steps and remind him, hey, just stand here, just relax right in the middle. But typically, if you've done your job right, that horse isn't wanting to move around a lot anyway. And if they are, you know you've done an, an inefficient job. But I'll step back up to that horse's head. I've obviously got the rope. It's not around my, bat, my butt anymore. I've got it just coiled up nicely in my right hand. With my left hand, I'll snap the lead rope up and coil it nicely in my left hand there. And what I'll do is I'll just kind of work my way down that foot rope. And how I get the rope off, I'm going to be very safety conscious for several reasons. Number one, it's a green horse in the first place. But number two, even if you're like I am and you're using a thicker, softer calf rope for this exercise, that rope with that rawhide hondo on it has probably chafed that horse a little bit. You know, sometimes depending on how hard that horse struggles, they might have rubbed themselves a little bit raw on their pasterns. That's just a natural byproduct of this. It's not a big deal. But that raw skin that's exposed right now might be a little bit ouchy. So if I suddenly grab my hand down there and seize that rope on that raw skin, you know, it might cause that horse to have a reaction or even kick at me. So what I'm going to do is get, get back to that horse's hip, rub on him, kind of work my way, approach and retreat up and down toward that leg. You know, starting up at the hip and then down their legs and then back up again. Just like the last couple days we've reviewed rubbing down the feet, this is where that comes in handy. But once I'm able to work my way all the way down to that pastern, keeping myself safe, obviously, then I'll go ahead and loosen that rope and just let that loop and the hondo lay on the ground. And then what I'll do is stand back up and I'll just yield that horse's hindquarters out of the rope so that he steps out of the loop. I'm not going to pick the horse's foot up and remove it from the rope. I'm just going to loosen it, lay the loop on the ground, and then allow that horse to step out of it himself. Now, along with my approach and retreat, the next thing I need to do, especially if that horse has some raw skin, is I'm going to doctor that. I'm not just going to let that raw skin get dry and cracked and hurt more. What I'm going to do is I'm going to get some cream 
And again, doing approach and retreat, being very careful of how I approach and retreat up and down that hind leg. And I'm going to liberally rub a lot of cream all around that horse's pastern just to make sure that skin stays nice and soft and it doesn't get dried out and cracked and feel any worse than it has to. Now, I've never seen a horse in this exercise actually break the skin and like actively be bleeding. Typically, all that happens is they rub a little hair off, which will quickly regrow in like a week or two. But I'm still going to doctor it with that cream there. Right. It's like rope burn. And so, yes, it's raw there. But like Jake said, it's not it's not broken open or deep and bleeding. However, if you don't doctor it, what happens is it gets like crusty and scabby. And then just with the natural flexion of that horse's leg and pastern and ankle, if you let it get crusty and scabby, then when that horse walks and just that flexing of the joint there, then it will break open and get deeper. And then you run the chance of infection and things. So if you're proactive and on the ball here and you keep that nice and soft and lubricated there so that it can heal, that's what you want. It's like really chapped lips and then you try to smile and then like your lips crack like that, okay? Chapstick makes so that won't happen. Where you want to keep that that raw rope burn nice and soft. It's just like on the halter, like colts sometimes will run into this problem just because they've got that soft skin on their face, but a lot of older horses that are super stiff and fight halter pressure a lot, the first couple days that they're in training, they get raw spots on their nose and on the side of their face from that rope training halter. Just because they're leaning and pulling on it so much, they rub themselves raw. So again, just like, in that, just like with these feet, we're going to be proactive about doctoring that with cream to where that we keep that skin soft and it allows hair to regrow quickly. If we're on top of the ball there, that little bit of hair that quickly grows back in a week or two is a very small price to pay for getting that horse super soft and yielding to pressure and being smart about this. And that is ultimately, I wanted to cap this session off by reviewing the purposes of why we do this, because a lot of people would argue and say, well, this sounds a little bit dangerous. This sounds like, you know, I don't I don't want to make my horse's pasterns raw if I'm pulling on him with the with the lariat and giving him a rope burn. I don't want to do that to my horse. Why would I do that? Again, if done right and managed correctly and done safely and you know what you're doing and you take care of your horse before and after, it's a small price to pay. That little bit of hair missing is a small price to pay for so many benefits. And I'll go through a few of them here. But the main one is just about the fact that horse training itself, everything we do with horses, is about putting the horse in a mental and or physical bind, i.e. putting pressure on the horse, and allowing that horse to find the answer, and then releasing the pressure when the horse finds the correct answer. Done with repetition and with good timing, we teach that horse good mental habits. And this leading by the feet exercise is like that concept on steroids. We're teaching this horse that each individual leg of his can and should yield to pressure. That teaches mental submission. It teaches the horse to be relaxed about being put in that significant of a bind. And here's the big kicker and why we do it so early on. It builds confidence in the horse. It builds that horse's confidence that even though we're putting one of his legs in a bind, he's not in any danger and he's not in any trouble. And in fact, instead of reacting, if he will slow down, think his way through the situation and submit to that pressure and relax, he'll find a release. That teaching that builds 
extreme amounts of confidence in this horse. And it also teaches him to be relaxed about submitting to pressure in general. It's a very safe thing to teach this horse if you know what you're doing. And it's going to help prepare us for the rest of the hobbling process later on. It also just helps in general with our efforts to desensitize this horse to having his feet and legs handled. There's a ton of benefits to this exercise when done well. And as I said, that little bit of hair missing on their pasterns for a week or two is a small price to pay for building their confidence in a powerful way on only day three of the training. So you can imagine how good this horse is going to be in about a week here, a little bit less, when we step on their back for the first time. This is just one of the many ways where we're deeply preparing this horse's mind and setting him up for long-term success. For the advanced training segment today, I want to build on the dry work and the flag work discussions that we started in the previous two episodes of the season. Because if I had to nitpick our last episode on introducing the flag, we discussed a lot of the theories and ideas and things that inform how we approach the flag, but it was a little bit light on the practical training tactics level. So today I want to stick with the flag work, but I want to actually break down a few of the common problems or sticky spots that we encounter when introducing horses to the flag and how to correct them. This also applies to horses that have bad habits that we often will take back to the flag and review our dry work with to counteract some of these problems. And one of the biggest either green horse problems or problems that have come from a bad habit and lack of proper foundation that we run into is horses losing the hip to the outside. Specifically when making turns on the flag, they're constantly washing the hip out to the outside instead of using that hip as a platform on which to create a balanced turn. And again, this could come from a lack of fundamentals where, you know, in our fundamentals and in our dry work, we want that horse to travel straight, stop straight, be balanced, make a controlled turn, and then drive off straight in the other direction. A horse might be lacking that foundation, or in some cases, the greener they are, and especially really cowy horses, they tend to want to turn toward the flag too much and get all up into the flag and beat us through the turn instead of being patient and drawing back onto their hindquarters and making a correct turn. They want to rush things with their front end, and as a consequence, we lose the hindquarters to the outside. So one of the big things we can do to correct that is by reviewing and drawing attention to the fact that when the flag moves, their first instinct should be to get back and load up on their hindquarters rather than turning. So there's a couple different ways we can do that. One of them is that we can be really methodical about starting the flag and sending it back past the horse, you know, maybe letting it travel six to eight feet and then stopping it again. And at the same time the flag begins and starts moving, we back the horse up several steps and load him up. A horse that is kind of in a bad habit of immediately turning and losing the hindquarters to the outside, they're going to want to turn when that right when that flag moves. So you can catch them there and back them up several steps, get your legs in them, straighten them up, and get them set in the correct position again. So all you did was you sent the flag past the horse just a little ways. You caught the horse as he tried to make the incorrect decision to simply turn. You got him back on his hocks. You got him loaded up and straight again. And then you simply stop and release. So you never actually followed through with the turn. You just reminded him, hey, I, I need you to load back up and get back rather than turn immediately the second the flag moves. 
you know, typically when you're doing something like that, you want to back the horse up about four to five steps to straighten him up and get him loaded again. Ideally, you don't want to have to back much more than that, but you might have to a few times to correct something. You know, if the horse is really crooked, if they're stiff up front, you might have to get into their face deeper and soften them up and really make a point to get them rocked back and get them in the correct position again and get them balanced. But again, like we touched on last time, you don't want to get too carried away with it. If your flag work sessions are becoming a constant backing up contest, it's a sign that you haven't done the fundamentals in your dry work correctly and the, the body control is just not there. It's one thing to make corrections here and fix a bad habit or something that's breaking down, but if it's a constant fight, you know that you've got a hole in your foundation. So there's a bit of a judgment call there, but typically I'll let the flag travel back six to eight feet and at the same time I've backed the horse up four to five steps, make sure he's straight and make sure he's loaded up. I'll release the pressure and at that point, once the horse is back in the correct position, I've got a decision to make. If I sent that flag past him and rather than completing the turn, I just loaded him up a couple steps, if he was really honest about that and he wasn't really leaning or anticipating, then I can send the flag again, load him up, and then actually complete the turn and go with it. Or if he's very much in that anticipation mode, or, or I can feel him leaning, or I, I just know that he's going to make that same mistake of wanting to be crooked and lean, then I can repeat that process again. So I might send the flag, you know, catch him as he tries to wash the hip out to the outside, or get crooked, or try to beat me through the turn, back him up, get him loaded up, stop, release send the flag again, catch him again, back, 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 get you loaded up and straight, stop, release. I might do that two or three times or more. I might just go all the way down the whole length of my string if that's what it takes. I have to do that several times in a row on that side. Send the flag a little ways, drawing back, stop. Send it again, drawing back, stop. Send it a little further, drawing back, stop. Okay, now come through the turn. Again, every time I draw that horse back, it's kind of a judgment call on my part of, okay, the next time I send the flag, if he feels balanced and he feels honest and straight under me, everything is where it needs to be, then I'll let him come through the turn and go with the flag. But the whole point of that, of course, is to draw attention to the fact that you need that horse to engage the hip. He's got to be patient. He's got to first get his hip underneath of him and then turn. So when the flag moves, his instinct needs to be to draw back. Now, when you're working on this and getting the horse loaded up correctly, especially in the beginning, even a talented horse, you're going to make them late to the flag because you're being so methodical about getting them loaded up, using that hindquarters to create a platform on which a proper turn is created and then actually go through and follow through the turn itself. By the time you get through that process and come out the other side and go after the flag, the flag is going to be ahead of you. So you've made the horse a little late, but in the beginning, that's okay. Just drive back across, stop the horse even with the flag again, and keep repeating that process. And the reason we want to do that, in the beginning especially, or if this is a horse that we're getting bad habits dug out of and trying to retrain him, we need to create that muscle memory and that patience. We need to let this horse find his way through that turn without rushing, do it with good habits, you know, if he's late to the flag after completing the turn, we kind of let that develop at its own speed. And then as he comes out of the turn, now we can get after him a little bit more aggressively, hustle him across that pin to get caught back up to the flag on the other side and get him where he needs to be put. And that touches on what we discussed last time of 
you set that turn up and allow it to happen, especially in the beginning stage. You want to teach patience so you're not too worried if the horse is late to the flag. But when you finally get back going straight again and get going the other direction, that's where you can get your legs in the horse and get more aggressive about speeding them up. That goes into another little tidbit that we didn't talk about too much, which is that you see a lot of guys, especially cutting horse trainers that start horses this way, they do a ton of extended jogging with their horses. Either they or their assistants will take these colts out and do a lot of long trotting on the loose rein, posting to the trot and really pushing that horse to stride out there and cover some ground. And I want to point out that Either the jog or the extended jog is where this flag work is best done. The, the trot, the jog is a teaching gait. This is going to be allow the horse to be more balanced. You just have more control. But you do need that horse to actually put some effort into, after they've come through that turn, they need to stride out and go cover some ground and get going somewhere. With a lot of horses we work with, one of two things is happening. Either the horse is too short and they're kind of po-dunking along without really stretching out and covering ground and getting somewhere, or they're loping during this entire process. And in that case, you just have a lot less control and balance. Remember, what we're trying to instill here is patience and good mental habits about balance. So the best gate to do that at is at the trot, at the extended jog. So if your horse is not good about that, if your horse has kind of a slow padunkadunk trot, or as you're making these turns, the horse is trying to rush and lope instead of just jog, either way, you need to get them really comfortable about that extended jog. So just in the rest of your training outside of the flag work, you want to do a lot more extended jogging and really push that horse to get comfortable at that speed and at that gait. It's not a normal jog, but it's not a lope either. And the best way to do that is lots of long trotting, long straight lines, and posting to that jog. And really, with all of your body language and your intention as a rider, you're pushing that horse forward, 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 go, 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 with rhythm, getting them to stride out there and be confident to cover some ground, but not feeling like they have to break into the lope. A lot of horses are uncomfortable at that long trot gait. So really work on that a lot and get them comfortable with it. That's a big component of making this flag work successful as well. You see a lot of like team pinning horses that are kind of awkwardly jumping and flopping around and kind of troping up there and zipping through the turn super uncontrolled. These horses just look like short, balled up, stiff, awkward weirdos when they're working a flag or working on a cow. We don't want our horses to be like that, but we don't want them to be lagging behind and not able to cover ground either. There needs to be a good happy medium, which is that extended jog. Another problem that we often see, especially in the beginning with these greener horses, is that the horse will over-rotate the turn. So let's say the horse is turning from right to left. As they make that left turn, they go too far to the left. Instead of turning 180 degrees and driving off straight the other direction, they turn you know, 200 degrees. They over-rotate the turn. We talked last time about trying to eliminate wasted motion. We used like athletic metaphors for that. And it's very common in the beginning that horses are going to over-rotate the turn. And usually they're, they're doing it in a way where they drift away from the flag. So when that happens, their weight and their momentum is carrying them away from the flag and they're going crooked. 
And if you try to drive them off straight again, typically what the horse will have to do in order to get back into position is take a kind of half trip step forward and toward the flag again. And that way they can exit the turn correctly. And that can be very messy and clumsy in the beginning because you lose rhythm in the horse's feet. They're drifting sideways. You've got a bunch of wasted motion there. What I tell people in the beginning is that it's not a huge deal, but all you're going to do in those moments is just catch that horse with your outside leg and drive him back over on that imaginary line parallel to the flag that you want him to be traveling on. In the beginning, I consider it my responsibility as the rider to keep showing that horse where he needs to be, keep putting him back into position. I'm not going to really wail on him with my outside spur if he's over-rotating or kind of drifting off the flag, but I'm not just going to let him wander over there either. I'll get my outside leg in him, drive him back over there straight, and I'm going to let time and repetition and muscle memory that I'm working on through all my flag work sessions, that will help that horse find better rhythm and get his footwork more confident. So I'm not going to worry too much about that in the beginning. Another common problem is you get horses that are very stiff or reluctant to clear themselves through the turn. If you're working with a green or undisciplined horse on the flag, you'll often feel them make turns that are lazy, stiff, or reluctant. And so remember that a smooth turn requires that horse to load up, and then as they initiate that turn, their inside front foot has to step back and clear the way for that shoulder. We refer to this as the horse clearing the way or clearing, you know, coming through themselves. So effectively, we're asking that horse to load up and then pivot on his outside hind foot as he turns. Well, a lot of times, as you pick up and start bringing that horse's nose through the turn, you're going to feel resistance somewhere in the horse's body that gets in the way of that process. For example, you'll often feel that horse is not clearing their inside hind foot out of the way. You know, they're kind of getting in their own way or they're stepping on themselves, their inside front foot steps back. The hind foot isn't out of the way, and so they step on their own hind foot sometimes, or maybe the horse is just being stiff up front. They're not actually drawing back to clear the way for their shoulder. They're kind of getting in their own way up in the front end, or they're not being soft enough through the rib cage. They're not elevating the inside rib cage and getting out of their own way. They're just kind of leaning through that turn and coming through it really stiff and flat-footed, or they're just being stiff in the face and just being lazy. All of these things could be happening. You're going to feel all these different types of resistance that the horse might throw at you. But it's actually a very simple correction that we're going to make in a lot of these cases. Let's say I'm making a left turn, and what I'll do if I feel that type of resistance is I'll simply keep the horse's nose pulled around to the left in this case, and I'm going to see if I can rock him back and soften that inside part of his body that was kind of getting in the way or being stiff or kind of offending there. That's what I call turning the horse around on the foot. Although your exact correction is going to depend on what you felt that horse doing in that moment. I'll alternate between turning him around and focusing on the front end or backing a tight circle and trying to clear that hindquarters or clear that rib cage. If he was lazy about loading up or clearing the inside hind foot, I'll focus more on the backup. I'll keep his nose bent around to my inside toe and I'll use my inside leg and spur to pick up and soften the inside of that horse's body. I'll be using both legs to get him backing, of course, but I'll be putting additional focus on my inside leg and spur to really free up that side of his body and break him loose through there. 
if he was lazy about clearing the inside front foot or just lazy and stiff about bringing the front end around, I'll focus more on that and I'll actually just turn him around in place rather than initiating a backup in a tight circle there. Sometimes I'll even transition between the two without releasing the pressure. I'll have the horse's nose tipped the entire time. I might draw him back onto his outside foot and back a tight arc with him shaped that way toward the inside. And then I might bring his shoulders around a, a revolution or two and then release and go to my flag again. Really, how exactly you make that correction, it depends on what type of resistance you felt through the horse's body. So there's no cookie cutter formula there. There's no cookie cutter exercise or one specific body part that you focus on. You have to slightly adapt it. But that formula of when you feel stiffness in the front end, you focus on breaking that loose. When you still, when you feel stiffness maybe through the, through the hindquarters or through the middle of the horse's body, you focus on breaking that loose. So there is kind of a formula there that never changes, but you tweak the variables depending on what you felt in the moment. But above all, you're not going to spend too much time drilling and pounding on that horse. You know, that we talk about not training the cow out of them. Ultimately, the goal here is we want to create muscle memory. We want to connect what that horse knows how to do in his body, connect those habits to the flag. So if I have to make a correction like this, I have a very get in, get out mentality. I pulled him off the flag, I turned him around or back to tight arc or maybe both and made a quick transition between the two. I got that horse softened up and I get in, I get out. Once I release, I go right back to the flag. Now we're back in business. Now we talked last time about making active corrections and there is a fine line between making effective corrections in the moment like that to break some kind of stiffness loose or just remind the horse of where he needs to be versus unfairly nitpicking the horse's every movement. It's easy to fall down a rabbit hole right here and start nitpicking the horse and making constant little corrections. But remember, there is a necessary amount of leeway that we need to give the horse here. We don't need things to be perfect, especially in the beginning, but we also don't want what I call egregious or exercise-breaking levels of resistance or sloppiness. You know, if that horse goes somewhere, drifts somewhere that he's not supposed to be, he doesn't want to stop with the flag, he's not watching it, he's kind of running through my hands, or you know, his turn is lazy or stiff, I'm going to help him in those situations. I'll correct on him or just get him back where he's supposed to be, get my legs and hands in him and do that with authority. But I'm not going to be sitting up there and being overly critical of every step he takes either. I work with a lot of people that are what I call trigger happy. They're looking for any excuse to get in their horse's face and train on them. And my mentality is I'm just trying to do the minimum that it takes to help the horse figure out where he's supposed to be. And I'll let time and repetition do the heavy lifting for me. So in my flag work sessions, you know, there might be two or three times where that horse is a little bit stiff or, you know, I really didn't like something that I felt, but I'm going to just ignore that and go with it because the horse will present an opportunity at multiple times during the session where there's sufficient resistance to where you can call that out, correct on the horse, you know, turn him around or, you know, back him off the flag and get your inside leg in him and get him softened up again through the ribs, whatever needs to be done in that moment. You let the horse commit fully to that mistake, and then you can make an effective correction. But if you're constantly nitpicking and manufacturing, you never allow that horse a chance to experience a contrast between, okay, this is acceptable, and boom, okay, no, this is a big red flag. Don't do this. 
especially when a horse is young, we need to draw those contrasts in their mind. And that will build confidence if we have consistency in the way we're correcting them there. But if we're constantly nitpicking and the horse is never able to figure out what our standards actually are, then it creates uncertainty and a lot of times anxiety in those more sensitive, feely horses. A good analogy would be like if you're a baseball player and you have a bad umpire that's calling your game and it's an inconsistent strike zone. So the ball's coming in and it's right at knee height. Sometimes he calls it a strike. Sometimes he doesn't. You know, sometimes it seems like balls that are way too outside, they get called strikes. And then other times it's right over the middle of the plate and he's not calling it. That creates uncertainty and tension because now as a batter, you have to act defensively about what the umpire is doing instead of just focusing on playing the game the way you know how. I don't want to be a bad umpire for my horse. I want to have a consistent strike zone where if that horse is stepping outside the boundaries, he gets an immediate and an obvious correction, get in, get out mentality. But otherwise, I'll give that horse some wiggle room and I'll let time and repetition do the work for me of building that muscle memory and confidence. Another common problem that you're going to run into when you're working horses on the flag, and this applies, again, equally to green horses as well as horses with bad habits that we're correcting, is when these horses are not really paying attention to the flag. We talked a lot in the previous two episodes about being methodical, especially with the sensitive cowie horses, the ones that are overly ambitious and trying to do too much. But what about the horses that don't try hard enough? What about those lazy, low ambition horses? You know, often you'll work with those type of horses and they won't be paying attention or be very interested in the flag. And in that case, one of the best tactics that you can use is to A, shorten the distances between, you know, where you're sending the flag. So rather than sending the flag all the way to the end, then all the way back across and being methodical with it, you shorten the distances up, you vary them, and overall you quicken the pace of your work session. So you're sending the flag shorter distances where the horse has got to drive forward, stop, turn, go, stop, turn, and you pick up the pace and you have a much quicker rhythm with it. In other words, you're challenging that horse to pay attention. I really like to do that with horses that are lazy, or in some cases you get a young horse that's just mentally immature and they're easily distracted or, you know, looking over the fence or whinnying that their homies in the barn, whatever is going on, they're just not interested in the flag and they've got no desire to watch it. So what I'll do in that case is I'm going to raise the intensity of the work session. I want to command that horse's attention and focus and really grab it and put them in a more high pressure situation. And I'll do that by raising the tempo, raising the intensity of what I'm doing with the flag. So I've got them hustling. I'm challenging that horse a lot more now to watch the flag. The flag, rather than just easily going smoothly all the way down and all the way back. Now I've shortened it. I'm varying the distances that I'm sending the flag. I'm doing things a lot more quick and aggressive. And I'll do that for several minutes right there. And when I feel that lazy horse start to brighten mentally and they start better connecting what we're doing with the flag, then I'll immediately find a good spot to quit. Just like we do elsewhere with lazier or less ambitious horses, I've got to get their mind and body activated like that and then I'll go ahead and quit the session on a good note. A, a moment where the horse was putting more effort in, they were mentally bright, and they were actually paying attention, I'll go ahead and reward that. It's just like how with lazy horses, like with loping exercises, for example, rather than loping and loping and loping and making this already lazy, unambitious horse even more tired and resentful, we're going to lope a shorter session, 
but we're going to work the horse much harder. And when we get that burst of intensity and performance where the horse is putting effort in, we'll quickly end the session on a good note and really reward that horse for putting that effort in as opposed to a a super hot, nervous horse where we're going to take a lot longer, we're going to do a lot more transitions, we're going to have a long cool-down period. With a lazy horse, we don't do any of that. And it's the exact same philosophy on the flag. On the flag, with a lazier horse, we're going to up the tempo, shorten the distances, that flag's going to be moving quicker, we're going to be hustling, we're going to be getting through our turns faster, we're going to be really challenging that horse to hustle, move, stop, turn correctly, get through there, boom, let's go, you know, a lot more demand, but then the second they give us that extra bit of effort and focus, we're going to release and give them a big reward, as opposed to a really sensitive, cowy, feely horse that we have to be super methodical with and teach patience. This type of horse, this lazy one, is the exact opposite. So we're not going to get too carried away with that, but we will apply that philosophy in this case. And I found that to be the most effective way to get a horse that's not paying attention or just not interested in the, in the flag to get them hooked up mentally to it. So we've talked about horses that are losing the hip to the outside of the turn, over-rotating the turn, um, being stiff and resistant through the turn, or just not paying attention and watching the flag. Those are probably the biggest most common problems that I run into working horses of all different levels on the flag. And those are the most common fixes that I apply, the most common tactics that I use. One of the reasons why this flag work is very difficult to describe over audio in some ways is because so much of it involves making active corrections in the moment, depending on what that horse's body is doing. For example, like we talked about with that horse making a stiff or reluctant or sloppy turn, You know, you might pull that horse off the flag and into a turnaround, but what you do then in that moment has to match up to where the offense was in that horse's body. You know, if it was their shoulders that were stiff and reluctant to come around, you need to get more outside leg in them, keep that horse's nose bent around, but get them turning around more aggressively and make them committed to it and break those shoulders loose. Or if the horse was stiff in the face, you might need to bump or jerk on that inside rein, get their nose brought around and say, hey, you know, when I draw your nose, you need to come with that instead of hanging on my hands. Or if you felt a big stiff knot in the middle of their body, you need to pull them off the flag, keep their nose bent around, but draw them back onto a tight arc with their body still shaped, picking up with that inside spur, you know, pressing or rolling on that inside rib cage and saying, hey, bud, you need to soften that up get out of your own way so that you can come through that turn more fluid. Or if that horse is not not loading up on their hindquarters, not being patient there, drawing them back straight as they try to wash the hip to the outside, you catch them with that outside leg back there, but at the same time you're drawing them back onto their hocks, straightening their body back up underneath of you and reminding them of where they need to be and they can't just sloppily abandon that balanced position and turn completely on their front end and go with the flag so quickly. You have to make these little judgment calls moment to moment. And we talked about active corrections in the last couple podcasts. And I wanted to end this segment with a note about that, because one of the biggest challenges that I've personally had to overcome in my training, and that I'm still 
working on, as a matter of fact, is that for many years, I was really embedded in what I call the clinic horsemanship mindset. This is a style or habit of riding that you get into as a novice where you're not actively riding with your feet very much. You use your feet in very blatant, obvious ways, but you don't have a lot of subtlety there. Like to get the horse moving forward, you squeeze, cluck, and spank. Or if you want to yield the horse's hindquarters, you put your leg back and press. And if the horse doesn't yield, then you reach back behind your leg with the spanker or the end of the rein and, and reinforce your leg there. You know, you might put your leg back and press on the horse's ribcage to get him to side pass. So you can do those things. But again, it's very blatant and obvious in the way that you're using your legs. And probably the biggest problem I've had to overcome in my own riding over the past few years as well as the other people I've worked with who came through a similar background, is that all of us got in a habit of thinking more about using our hands to guide, shape, and direct the horse instead of actively riding with our feet. Using your hands more is necessary in the beginning. I will admit that because when you're first starting out, your feel and timing is bad and you have to have a very two-dimensional understanding of applying pressure. But as you advance as a rider, you have to start being more aware of what's happening in the horse's body and be able to actively respond instead of just keeping your legs and hands either completely off the horse or completely on and active when the horse makes a blatant mistake you have to be more subtle about it you have to start thinking about how to use your feet actively in the moment to shape the horse's body and help put them in better positions to make athletic moves than they would otherwise adopt on their own. For example, during this flag work, if the horse under rotates the turn, meaning they don't turn enough and they end up pointed too close to the flag, I can get my inside or, or flag side leg in that horse and drive him up off of it. Or if he does the opposite thing, if he over rotates away from the flag and is drifting away from it, I can catch him there with my outside leg and drive him back over straight where he needs to be. After I get stopped, when I load the horse up and prepare for that next turn, at the same time I'm loading him up, I'm kind of using that inside leg a little bit and spur to just ever so subtly pick up that inside rib cage to help set the horse up to successfully clear that inside as he comes through the turn. And my outside leg is going to actually help keep that horse, keep his hip underneath of him. So as I'm loading him up, I'm shaping him subtly with my inside leg, my flag side leg, but at the same time, my outside leg is just a little bit further back on his body, kind of holding him in place and keeping that hip underneath me. Again, it's not a blatant, obvious manufacture, but it's just these subtle, active cues that I'm making with my legs to help keep that horse and put him in a better position than he would otherwise naturally just assume on his own. Now, to be fair to the clinic horsemanship side of things, I do believe that when you're first starting out, you need to be taught to apply pressure in a very black and white, two-dimensional, it's either on or it's off way. And that's because most of us in the beginning have terrible feel and timing. And we're doing a lot of, we're doing a whole lot of nothing with our legs and hands, pulling on the horse's mouth at the wrong times, fairy bumping our, our hands on the reins, jiggling our spurs on the horse's side and nagging them constantly instead of using effective leg pressure. Most of us do this in the beginning. And in order to get rid of those bad habits, you have to train yourself out of it. You have to train yourself to be disciplined about things like squeeze, cluck, spank in that order, or you know, bend the horse's nose, put your leg on, press. If they don't move, spank. The moment they move, release. You have to train yourself to be disciplined about that application of pressure. 
But over time, you need to develop that subtlety again that's going to help you at these advanced levels. And an increasing problem that I'm seeing is a lot of riders who are trying to get too much done with their hands. Good hands are important, but at the end of the day, riding at an advanced level requires a lot more active, smarter, subtler use of your legs and feet, plain and simple. So how do you know whether you need to be applying your leg or what the horse's body is doing? It all comes down to experience and working with a trainer or mentor who has the knowledge and the patience to observe your riding and make call-outs, depending on where the horse is leaning, stiff, etc. And at the same time as they're making that call-out, moment to moment, they're telling you what you need to do about it. Because that allows you, that's the only way, really, that you're going to learn it. If you're stuck riding by yourself, you can still try as you're riding to feel what's going on and just kind of learn through trial and error. But it's a lot easier if you have somebody there actively watching your session, making call-outs, and telling you what to do moment to moment on what you're doing wrong, what you're doing right, where the horse is making a mistake, where you need to correct, etc. That's why you really can't beat that in-person instruction. You know, it's that exact same phenomena we talk about when it comes to teaching your horse the correct leads. I work with so many people who are really self-conscious about, oh, my horse doesn't know how to change leads. It's something we need to accomplish. I need to get my horse changing leads, blah, blah, blah. But they really, their feel is behind that skill that they're trying to accomplish. They can't even feel what lead their horse is on or if the horse has changed leads. Whereas a, a good horseman, an experienced horseman, can feel where each of that horse's feet are at underneath of them without having to look down and figure it out visually. How do you get to that level of feel? It's practice and experience, and it's a constant effort to grow your awareness as well as having a mentor there to help you which is exactly the kind of input and those moment-to-moment -moment call outs and that coaching on active corrections that we really provide through the Horseman's Academy. That's why the lessons that we do, as well as the video of those lessons that we capture while they're with you working, that's why that's so powerful. Because you go from a two-dimensional awareness of how to apply pressure to a more active, three-dimensional, much more subtle, but effective way of riding with your hands and legs. So, you know, there's probably people listening to this who they still don't quite understand what it should feel like when the horse, say, clears the way, you know, to get back through themselves in the turn, gets out of their own way, softens that rib cage, draws back correctly, stays balanced. If you don't know what that should feel like, then that's a wake-up call that you need to find somebody with the experience or at least the, the coaching ability to walk you through those things and try to start moving that ball towards the goalpost. Because if you're on your own, as I figured out when I was first learning, it's way harder to try to do this through trial and error. There's so many subtleties and things that the horse will throw at you in the moment that if you're not aware of it, it just goes right over your head and it creates bad habits down the road because you're not catching and fixing those little things that are happening. But at the same time, learning those things is not or at least it should not be, in my opinion, it should not be an intimidating experience. It's literally just about getting somebody that's knowledgeable, that's going to make call-outs, point things out to you, and you do enough repetition to where your muscle memory gets better, your feel and timing gets better, and you can take that program and run with it yourself. You don't have to follow a trainer's blueprint anymore. That's what we do through the academy. There's a saying out there that 
Once you understand the concept, you can invent your own techniques. That is the core of what we teach. When you understand what you're supposed to be feeling in the horse's body and where your positioning should be and how the horse's body works, once your understanding gets to a certain point, you'll know instinctively what kinds of corrections to be making based on what you're feeling that horse do in the moment. You won't even have to think about it. You'll just know, and you won't have to follow a strict set of exercises. You can just make the correction that's going to be most effective for that horse, and you can be flexible and adapt things to what the horse is showing you. That's really what riding at an advanced level is all about, and that's what we're trying to teach in our program. So we're going to, in our next episode, we're going to go through actually introducing the horse to the cow for the first time. And so a lot of these things I've just discussed are going to be even more critical, but we're not going to harp on that anymore. We're going to leave that that should go that stuff should go without saying now. So we're going to open a new chapter of introducing this horse to a live cow for the first time and we want to walk through exactly how to do that. If you're like I used to be and you think that tracking a cow, i.e. following the cow around directly behind it and matching the cow's speed and uh you know if you think that that is the best way to introduce a young horse to cattle, then I have a way better method that I think makes a lot more sense gets the horse a lot more attached to that cow in the very beginning, and I think you'll enjoy it. So on our next episode, we're going to introduce this young cow horse to live cattle and walk you through that entire process from start to finish. For our theory segment, we wanted to wrap up with a note about leadership. We use that term a lot, and we often touch on what it means to be a leader for your horse. But I want to reorient that discussion a little bit because I think that too many horse owners have this idea of leadership being this utopian horse and human in harmony type of thing, which just isn't reality. So I want to clarify my thoughts on what leadership around horses actually means. And to start with, let's use a real world human business analogy and apply that back to horses. Right. So those of you listening to this might have your own business or you might be in a leadership position in your work or in your career and you might be familiar with the saying that I may be wrong but I'm never in doubt. I may be wrong but I'm never in doubt. There's this old wisdom in leadership and business that says never share doubts no matter how tumultuous or how dysfunctional things might feel under the surface. Don't let that stuff show and affect your outward performance act as if you have rock solid confidence and have it all figured out and never share your doubts with anybody for example you might go into a negotiation with a bank to get financing for some business venture and what do you do you act as if your idea or venture is the greatest opportunity in the history of capitalism that it's a certain and proven winner because that can do attitude that you have is going to come out in your body language your charisma, how you present yourself, how you carry yourself. Because the people that you're pitching your idea to, they're not really so much focused on the logical and the mathematical structure of how your idea works. They're not betting on the horse, figuratively speaking. They're betting on you, the jockey. Do you have the confidence and the swagger and the can-do attitude to actually make this thing happen? That is often more valuable than the strength of the idea on paper itself. So when we talk about not sharing doubts, you know, you don't even want to say things like, well, you know, I really like this opportunity. It's it's going to be a little bit risky, but if it pans out, the payoff's going to be huge. No, you don't even want to hint that you might have 
doubts. Because these people are focused on how certain you are, how driven you are. Do you crave success like you crave air in your lungs? That's what's going to inspire confidence in these people. You know, the bottom line is it's not the strength of your business plan on paper. The, a business plan is just you documenting your stupidity. It doesn't matter whether it makes logical or mathematical sense. What matters is your level of confidence, your level of self-esteem, your level of can-do attitude, and just this gut feeling of certainty that comes off in everything that you do that other people pick up on and that's going to motivate them. That's what leadership is all about. It's about sheer will. And that's even more important around horses. Why? Because, you know, as humans, we have a logical and rational ability to analyze things. Deep down, we're all very emotional creatures. We make emotional decisions that we justify with logic. But horses have even less logical capacity than we do. Pretty much every decision a horse makes is going to be instinctive and reactive. Now, through training, we can get a horse to use, quote, the thinking side of his brain. But even still, he's not going to be able to logically follow chains of reasoning and problem solve on the level that we can. So, you know, bringing back to this analogy and this contrast in life and business, we talk about leading a group of human beings and inspiring them to action, right? And instilling them with confidence. Even if the underlying risks are ever present, you present a firm and confident leadership role. Well, what about leading a scared, reactive prey animal like a horse? Leadership is all the more important in that case. And this comes up all the time when we work with riders who are struggling with confidence issues. They're insecure. Their horse is picking up on that. The horse knows that they're insecure. The horse sees this scared human on their back as a liability. So the horse starts doing reactive, silly things that scares the human even more. And it becomes this vicious negative feedback loop of the horse and human scaring each other and undermining each other's confidence in themselves. Or sometimes it's not even a fear-based issue. Like maybe the person, maybe the rider doesn't lack confidence so much as they just lack will. They lack the willingness to follow through on the things that they're asking their horse to do. Rather than leading with confidence and authority, they have a wishy-washy application of their cues or the exercises they're doing with their horse. For example, just the other day, I saw this video on Facebook of a lady who was lunging her horse and she's got it going around in a couple circles. She yielded the horse's hindquarters and got two eyes and the horse came in and crowded her personal space a little bit. So this lady marched her arms in place with rhythm to try to back the horse up and the horse literally did nothing. It didn't move didn't move a muscle, like Comrade Stalin's famous order to the Russian army when they were getting their butt kicked, not a step back. <laughs> that was basically this horse's philosophy. So he didn't move. So what did the lady do? She gave up. She herself took a step back away from the horse so that she could then rub it on the face with the training stick, because otherwise the horse would have been too close to do that. Unbelievable. Instead of moving the horse's feet, she got out of its way so that she could pet on it. It's that kind of lack of willingness to follow through, to escalate pressure, to actually stick to your guns and follow through on your cues. That is the death knell for any productive relationship with a horse. Why do I say that? Because consistency is your greatest ally in horse training. Consistency in everything, including in how you apply your cues and the standards that you're expecting of your horse. But if you're constantly undermining yourself and breaking your own rules, it's just going to erode your horse's level of trust and respect towards you. It teaches the horse, really, it shows them 
outright that you're not a strong leader, you don't really believe in what you're asking, and you don't have the guts to follow through if the horse doesn't respond. So if the horse is seeing that behavior from you, what motivation or incentive do they have to respect you? It's interactions like that that really plant deep seeds of doubt in your horse's mind. You're being inconsistent and doubting yourself, and therefore that horse picks up on that weakness, and they have no reason to really respect or trust you. So getting back to a business analogy, you know, I've had to learn some harsh, harsh lessons in just the past year. The people that know me and that are a lot closer to me and what we are doing here with with this business, they know the kind of challenges that we've had. And I've had to learn some very harsh lessons about leadership in general and what it means to actually be able to inspire trust in other people versus doing things that undermine and create doubt and create suspicion and create frustration in other people and break that trust that is so crucial to connect with other people and get anything of any human worth done. And it, it's very much applicable to horsemanship as well. You know, we have this this kind of movement out there socially and and business-wise. I've, I've seen a lot of speakers and people talking to this idea that this is a new era for leadership, that the true leader in the 21st century is not a gruff, take charge, can-do attitude type person who isn't afraid to step on somebody's feelings if they're out of line. The new type of leader is supposed to be sensitive and vulnerable and is supposed to have a high amount of emotional intelligence, right? And these are great things on the surface, but they neglect the practical reality of what it takes to instill confidence in other people. You know, there's there's three things that that really break trust among teams of individuals and that is number one just being scared about the risks that are out there and sharing doubts that way and causing people to really question if you know what you're doing and you're able to keep them safe and navigate these troubles or you handicap yourself as a leader because you're unwilling to follow through on the rules that you yourself have created you lack the will or you are self-conscious about doing what it takes in some cases and giving, you know, dishing out the tough love that's required, or it just comes through you're sharing doubts from a place of insecurity about your lack of experience. You're very open about how this is new, you're inexperienced, you don't know what you're doing, and that vulnerability creates a ton of doubt and fear in the people around you of whether or not this fool knows what he's doing. It's the same with horses. And so let's talk about those three specific categories that we've kind of pointed out, which is number one, people that handicap themselves because they're unwilling to follow through on the cues and the rules that they themselves have set. Number two, they're worried about their lack of experience and their lack of confidence comes through on that level, or they're just downright scared to do things with their horse from a safety standpoint. They have no confidence in themselves and that rubs off on the horse. And this whole situation becomes very ironic because they all kind of come from, you know, these three reasons that people doubt. All of them come from some form of fear. So if they're unwilling to follow through, they're usually fearful of what other people watching may think or they're feel fearful of, you know, putting too much pressure on the horse and, you know, hurting poor Fluffy or something along those lines. Um, or if they're inexperienced, they're fearful of messing up. Or if they're scared, they're kind of fearful from a safety standpoint. 
But the the horribly ironic part of this cycle is that by by being fearful and then showing your horse your own doubts, you are thus it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> you are now in more danger than you were before. Your horse is probably getting more disrespectful than it was before. And you are just in a, in a more dangerous experience than before. So let's kind of approach this. Let's kind of reverse undo this and approach this from a more positive standpoint. So if you're unwilling to follow through because you're afraid of looking mean, blah, 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 what what's the alternative here? Your horse chumps you in small little ways when other people are around. Well, that's going to grow and grow and grow until you are in a legitimately dangerous position, okay? So part of it's just going to have to be mentally getting over that hump of caring less about what people think about you and pushing through that to get results. And I promise you that once you do start getting those results, those same naysayers are going to be coming to you for advice. It's, it's Again, the whole thing is hilariously ironic. So that's kind of how we debunk that one. And I see this one a lot, number two, inexperience. So when you're inexperienced, you just kind of emit like timid vibes or like, I'm not sure how this is going to work out type of feelings to your horse. So when you approach things like that, you almost might as well not do them. Okay. Say you've, say you've seen this exercise done by a uh, horseman with more experience than you, a professional, you've watched some videos on it. You've um, decided that it would be a good and productive thing to try with your horse. Either do it with conviction or don't do it at all. By doing it really willy nilly, you're, you're honestly probably just creating more problems. I don't quite like everything that comes with the term fake it till you make it, but this is kind of where it applies. Pretend like you know what you're doing. Emit confidence so that your horse has someone to lead or, you know, the horse has you to lead them. You might be trying a new exercise or concept with a trial by error mentality. You're not sure if you're exactly applying things in the correct way, but whatever you're doing, you need to do it with conviction. And I very much fall, fell into this inexperienced camp when I was learning and I had this idea in my head and I don't know if somebody told me this There's just maybe I just did this to myself that I felt like if I didn't do it perfectly or with the perfect feel and timing and experience behind it that any mistakes that I taught my horse on accident, mind you, I thought those were permanent. Okay, I thought that if I taught my horse something incorrect and later found out a better way, like I was stuck with what I taught that horse. Just about everything can be undone. Harder, more ingrained habits, yes, they take more repetition to get undone. That's a case-by-case basis. But as a whole, when people are afraid of messing things up, it's really unwarranted because you're going to make mistakes and you're going to mess things up because people and horses don't learn perfectly. But as you learn, you can make those adjustments and raise those expectations with your horse. And he might look at you a little cockeyed and sideways, but if you just act like it's no big deal and well, this is how we do things now, it'll go off without a hitch. So that's, that's how we approach that. A lot of this stuff around insecurity, a good example of it is like, more advanced maneuvers like lead changes, for example, where there's a lot of moving parts, say. Um, I've done lessons with people whose horse had prior training and knows how to change leads, but they themselves had never changed leads on a horse before. And so they'll often come to me and say things like, well, I want to learn how to do lead changes, but at the same time, you know, I feel so clumsy and awkward about this. 
I don't want to mess the horse up because he already knows how to change leads. If I'm sitting here flopping around and making mistakes, I'm going to untrain him. And they're super worried about it. And my response to that is, well, what's the alternative? You never learn how to change leads. You're not going to get more competent or more experienced with anything until you do it. So you're not supposed to do it perfect from day one. You're going to do the best you can. And it's you know, it may not even be that great, but the alternative is you better be pretty happy with where you're at because that's where you're going to be permanently stuck unless you're willing to get out of your comfort zone and try new things. And when you try new things, it's just a fact of reality that you will mess things up, which is going to make you, it's a cycle and it can become a, a, a healthy, productive cycle of you being knowledge hungry. So you're going to mess something up and then you're like, oops, okay, well now how do I fix it? So then you go to find new answers and then you're probably not going to make that mistake again, but you might make a different one, okay? So it it gets the wheel going of learning rather than fear and timidness and lack of leadership and regression in the horse and more disrespectful behaviors, okay? We can flip that into a totally productive manner. Does that mean that it's a completely straight line? No. Does that mean that there's going to have to be effort put in on your part? Yes. But it starts with you trying and trying with confidence. Let's talk about fear because one of the stories that comes to mind, I remember we were actually helping with a horsemanship clinic. There was about 15 to 20 participants. Um, we were working out on the trail and we were practicing crossing our horses through a really steep ravine which with a small creek in the bottom. So just like going over any other trail obstacle, whether it's bridges, jumps, creeks, water crossings, big ditches, you name it, your confidence level as a rider and your willingness to like ride with active body language and step the horse up there with confidence and encourage that horse to navigate that obstacle, that plays a huge part into how that horse is going to perform. If you're sitting up there timid and scared because now the horse is going down a steep incline into this ravine and you're worried about falling off, you know, the fact that you're sitting up there like a closed pocket knife or like a clam, that's going to rub off on this horse mentally. It's basically going to legitimize his reactive prey animal mind's tendency to think that, oh, there might be something wrong here, you know, because typically if you're navigating a, a difficult obstacle like that, the horse might be thinking to themselves, well, I've never seen this before. I've gone down other ditches and climbs in the past, but not this one. This looks kind of precarious. But, you know, Susan on top of me here, she's like super gung-ho and confident, so I guess there's nothing to be worried about, you know. All of us know that that kind of body language and that how you carry yourself rubs off on your horse in a positive or negative way. Well, we're helping this group of riders, and this one lady in particular is the epitome of somebody that's scared and somebody that's clammed up. She's gripping the saddle horn with both hands to where she doesn't have her hands on the reins anymore. So she's not able to tip her, her horse's nose and steer that horse with authority and direct him down into this ditch. And she's kind of timidly bumping and jiggling her legs on the horse instead of just confidently stepping him up there, maybe kicking on him a little bit with rhythm to get his feet unlocked and ask him to step down into that creek. She's carrying herself with no confidence. She herself is, is like trying to visually not look down rather than leading with authority, you can tell that she's scared. And this woman was scared of something bad happening. 
So she's so scared that she can no longer steer the horse and she can no longer guide the horse effectively. So she thought something bad was going to happen. Well, now she's so scared she can't even guide the horse. So what did the percentage rate of something bad happening, where, where did that percentage rate go? It just skyrocketed. You're already fearful and you realize that just take a second to let that sink in. Like you just put the percentage rate of you actually having an accident here like through the roof because of your own fear. That's something that we constantly work on. We've done confidence clinics in the past, as well as lessons with with riders who are not confident. You have to get in a habit, and I know it's tough, but I've been there too as a beginner. You have to force yourself into a new habit of, if you feel scared or intimidated in a situation, you can't just clam up and stop everything. You can't freeze. You have to find a way to take action in those moments and do something because if you don't and you just sit there and freeze like a scared rabbit looking at a fox in the bushes, that horse is going to mentally be like, oh, well, she's not telling me where to go. She's not leading me. I guess I got to fend for myself. And then the chances of something bad happening just shot up a whole bunch there. Right. So by doing something, by taking control of the situation, um, by being a forward thinker and taking action, you are much, much safer than being afraid and clamming up. It's just like at our confidence clinic uh, last year, we had a girl in the clinic that had barely ridden a horse before. Okay. And we were doing a cruising session where we were having everybody lope around the arena on a loose rein. Well, how that cruising exercise works best is if everybody in the group is continuously loping and the horses are continuously moving, that's how everybody stays safe because the horses are all moving. They typically will kind of group up a little bit and they all find a similar direction to go and they all settle into a nice rhythm of just continuously loping around and they find some natural cadence and everybody's humming along and it's, it's good to go. But inevitably... And this happened at this clinic. You get somebody that's scared to lope on a loose rein and they want to stop the horse and just hide in the corner. Well, what happens then? That stopped horse just became a magnet for the other horses to run at and plow into because they're all loping around at speed. Meanwhile, you're stopped and stationary because you're scared and you're trying to hide in the corner. Now all you've done is you've attracted all the other horses to run at you and if you know, possible, collide on you and cause a dangerous situation to happen. You know, that's another perfect example of where when you freeze like that, you actually increase the chances of something bad happening. So I'm not going to be able to sit here on this podcast and tell people with different confidence issues and fear-based issues that they should just suck it up. That's not what I'm saying here. My point is that you need to work with somebody who's going to build your confidence by showing you ways to take action in those moments where you feel unsafe or threatened or like something might happen that takes the horse out of control. You need to work with somebody, a trainer, a coach, a mentor, whatever, who's going to try to rewire your brain in those moments to be more action-oriented. Another good example is trail riders who kind of go around super clammed up, holding onto the horn waiting for something bad to happen. And then it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. The horse's mind is wandering because they're not really doing anything to assert control or keep that horse's attention occupied. So that horse is just looking around mindlessly for things to spook at. And then suddenly a deer rustles in the bushes and that horse jumps. And that person's like, oh, I knew it. Ah! 
and they tense up and get scared and that causes the horse to overreact even further. And we see this play out at clinics where like you can actually watch first the human is scared, the horse reacts to something, the human gets startled and overreacts and then that scares the horse more and it's like this domino effect. And that's the essence of being a victim of circumstance in your riding rather than being a proactive rider who's taking action, even in situations where you are lacking confidence or feel that something might go wrong in the back of your mind, you need to acknowledge that. I'm not telling people to ignore fear. What I am telling them to do is in spite of their fear, you need to take action. Don't let your fear inhibit you from taking positive action in those moments. Because human beings have three basic instincts regarding fear or threats. We have fight, we have flight, and we have freeze. Typically, people say it's fight or flight, but there's actually a third one, which is what a lot of people do, which is to freeze in that moment because you're so overwhelmed, you're not sure what you should do, you know? And that happens a lot with horses. You can't really fight in a lot of cases. You realize that that's going to just cause even further problems. You can't flee because what are you going to do? Bail off the horse and fall hard and possibly hurt yourself? That's not a good option. So a lot of people just freeze and clam up in the saddle. And you've got to work with somebody who will show you ways to take action in those moments to take control of the situation and thereby, in taking action, keep you safe. And overall, build your confidence. That is the essence of what leadership really means in a nutshell. It's someone that can keep a cool head and take action even in those heated moments where there's the metaphorical wolves scratching at the door. You know, you're trying to be a leader for a thousand pound reactive prey animal that in its natural state scares itself with its own farts. Okay, this is a highly reactive animal that is going to need a competent take action leader that can show this horse what to do, that can occupy its mind, that can instill some confidence and respect in this horse's mind. That's what trust is really about. That's what leadership with horses is really about. It's not this airy, fairy, little unicorns and rainbow farts story that a lot of trainers peddle all day about how it's this emotional connection. No, this is what real connection, real relationship, and real trust is built on. It's built on you being a confident and competent leader. And even though you might be very aware of your shortcomings, whatever they may be, fear issue, lack of experience, or a hesitation to follow through on what you're trying to teach or what you're trying to accomplish, you need to find strategies to overcome those habits in your mind. And the best way to do that is work with a trainer or mentor that is an action-oriented person, not somebody who, when something bad happens with the horse or they mess up an exercise, you then have to sit there and get lectured by them for 30 minutes about how your body positioning was off. Work with a trainer or work with an instructor that's action-oriented and down-to-earth in their approach. It's very hard to do it alone. I myself, if it hadn't been for the people that mentored me throughout the years, I would not be in the position that I'm in. I would not have the confidence that I do with horses. So if you don't have that support structure, I would suggest find it. You know, that's the, the concept that we try to bring to our lessons with people that are struggling, to our confidence clinics, to our regular clinics in general, and especially to the Horseman's Academy to provide that mentorship structure there. You know, we might be working with some of our people on a lot more advanced exercises, but a large number of the people that we work with have 
confidence issues. They have things mentally going on, insecurities that are holding them back from doing what they really want to do or accomplishing what they really want to with their horses. So I wanted to kind of offer my take on what leadership around horses really means. And here's a nice little test. You can call it Lundahl's razor. When you're dealing with trainers and coaches, if they're talking about creating an emotional or a soulful connection with a horse, but they're not giving you actionable take charge strategies of things to do in the moment when you're feeling unconfident or when you're unsure of what to do, then they're doing you a disservice if they're not giving you actionable tools. But that's the best way to separate the emotional, cloudy, nebulous crap that is so prevalent in the horse industry from people that are actually going to put your best interests at heart and give you real things to do to build confidence and advance yourself as a horseman. So guys, I think we'll wrap the episode up there. If you have questions that you'd like to submit for the podcast, you can find us on Facebook. Just go to Facebook and type in Lundahl Performance. You'll find our page. You can message our page that way. Or you can go to anchor.fm slash Lundahl. That's anchor.fm slash L-U-N-D-A-H-L. In fact, in the episode description, if you're listening to this on Apple Podcast or Spotify, there should be a link not only to support the podcast, but to where you can submit questions for us to answer on the show. We really appreciate you guys listening to the podcast. Hope you got some value in it and some points that you can put to practice in the arena with your horses. And we look forward to seeing you here next time.